We can see that to be successful in struggle requires a certain degree of awareness and understanding of more than material reality. Success requires a spiritual consciousness. If, hypothetically, the masses achieve universal class consciousness and overthrew the 1% holders of 99% of the wealth and distributed their wealth equally amongst themselves, then what? Are we to suppose that the stubborn questions about God and why we're here will be satisfied by realizing the materialist goal of Marx? How does this work for people who have achieved wealth within capitalism? Have they realized fulfilled lives where their deepest existential issues went away, or did they experience suicide, alcoholism, and substance abuse, along with a host of other pathologies? Feeding the belly and even the mind is not like feeding the soul. While happiness is subjective, Marx's class revolution will leave man just as empty as capitalism. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Across from me today is a Harvard grad student named Hamza Raza. And Hamza is one of the uh, young men whose uh, head is on right in terms of the basic fundamental approach towards political issues. And the quote he pulled out today was from Sheikh Amin, uh, Sheikh uh, Imam Jamil Imam, Al-Amin. Uh, Jamil Al-Amin. Okay, I keep getting Sheikh uh, Amin Muhammad is mixed up. <laughs> uh, Sheikh Imam Jamil Al-Amin, which is an amazing quote on the difference between a metaphysical view towards justice and the materialist view towards justice. Huge theme. So first, I want to welcome uh, Hamza Raza. So thank you for, for coming. Yeah, it's great to be on. Okay, so you're, um, let's get straight to the point. You got this uh, quote. Tell us about, like, where, where'd you read it? Where'd you find it? What was Imam Jamil's, was this the crux of his thought? Tell us about it. So this book is from a, a book written by this organization called Black Dawah Movement. Okay. And the book is called An Invitation to Black Marxist. And okay. it basically says to these black Marxists, if you want to revolutionize society, if you want to change the communities that you're in, you can't do this with a secular ideology. Yeah. Islam provides a better um, formula, a better program to transform society than any secular framework. So what year was this, by the way? This um, Imam Jamil al I don't know when he said this quote, actually. It's probably going to be in the 70s, right? Probably in the 70s. His story is very interesting also. Tell us. So he is the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm. And before that, he's known as a firebrand in the civil rights movement. Yeah. So before he was chairman, he was head of the D.C. chapter. And they had a meeting. And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they did the, the sit-ins, the freedom rides, all of these sorts of things. Basically, um, oftentimes people would say that Martin Luther King Jr. would use the organization. Because these people would do the sit-ins, they would get arrested. Uh-huh. Then MLK would come in at the end and give his talks and yeah. get his fame and all of that. But there was one meeting where Imam Jamil, I mean, before he was Muslim, he was A-Trap Brown. Yeah. And he was meeting with Lyndon B. Johnson. And the Student Online Coordinating Committee, they used to do 24-hour protests right outside the White House where they would beat drums. And Lyndon B. Johnson, he says to Imam Jamil, I mean, who's then A-Trap Brown, he says to him, he says... You know, my daughters, they can't sleep at night because of your protest, and it's really troubling for me. And Imam Jamil Amin says to him, he says, you know, black people in America haven't been able to sleep for 400 years. <laughs> and he says, I hope that uh, we can address that at this meeting, and then maybe after that we can get to the trouble that your two daughters have. So he was that uh, high on the radar that uh, Lyndon Johnson was even, Yeah, know, he's on it. And they used to call him the rap wow. because he had a very, very sharp tongue. He wow. had a way with words. John Lewis, who's a congressman now, 
he was the chairman of the student nonviolent coordinating committee. Then Stokely Carmichael. Yeah. And then Atrap Brown. Wow. And when he becomes head of the student nonviolent coordinating committee, he takes the nonviolent out of the name. He changes it to student national coordinating committee. <laughs> and when they ask him why he did that, he says, "We're an authentically American organization, and violence is as American as cherry pie." <laughs> <laughs> and um, so eventually, he ends up um, at Attica State Prison, yeah. where a bunch of people involved in the civil rights struggle would um be and he gets a five-year sentence for inciting a riot yeah. which is basically a nonsense charge designed to throw him in jail I remember that. and over there he meets people from the Darul islam movement which was a african-american sunni muslim organization even before the nation of islam yeah and he starts going to juma starts going to the friday prayer just because um it's either that or you're in your jail cell at noon yeah so he's not muslim yet but he's just there because he wants to get out of the cell and then he starts going to Juma, and then eventually, after a couple of weeks, he says, the people, the stuff that they're saying, no one can refute it. He said, it makes complete sense, and this is basically what I believed all along. So then he becomes Muslim. And after he becomes Muslim, he, when he gets out of jail, he studies in India, he studies in Pakistan, and he studies a little bit in West Africa. He goes for Hajj, and then he moves back to the West End neighborhood of Atlanta. And the West End neighborhood of Atlanta is a very sort of poverty-stricken, run-down community. And he goes to drug dealers, he goes to prostitutes, and just regular people in the community. And he knocks on their door and he says, to the drug dealers and prostitutes, he says, you have, first I invite you to Islam. This is our theology. If you want to accept this, then accept it and it'll change your life. He's like, but if you don't accept it, we have rules in our community. And if you want to deal drugs, if you want to do prostitution, you get out. <laughs> That's my kind of man. Yeah, so West End, he tr completely transforms the it's, community. He was, he's one of the best leaders yeah. that we've ever had here. That we've ever had. And then later on, it's a very sad story, but he gets convicted of shooting police officers. And even the New York Times in the shooting, they're like, how is this man who has been nonviolently preaching Islam for three decades, how could he ever go into this tirade where he shoots two police officers? Yeah. And then another man... He confesses to the crime in jail, and it's not included at the trial, and the trial is a complete injustice. But um, he's in jail now, and yeah. So you know that so many people don't know his story. It's, don't know un his story. it's unbelievable, and the, the lack of attention that his story gets. And what's his status now? His status is he's in jail. He had a stroke a couple of months ago. But um, I wrote an article for Muslim Matters on this a couple of months ago, actually. I'm telling you, the the... the this it, Imam Jamil Amin became sort of a slogan, a word that's been said, a, a pin that's been that's worn. I don't think a lot of people have actually gotten to know the depth of who he was, his thought, right, and what he's actually done. So it's for a lot of people, it's merely just like uh, one of these people that you hear their names around. But I think he really deserves a lot more attention. He's not going to get anything from this new administration. Yeah. But if there was a window, it would have been the Obama it been, administration, yeah. right? And and. All the big shots who go to these White House iftars, I wonder what did they what did they do regarding this case because it, it's a complete fraud. Apparently, from from what I've read about it, it's a complete fraud. Uh -huh. uh, the case there is no grounds for it, and all these types of organizations that have clout. When I say White House iftar, it's symbolic to me of clout. Mm -hmm. Like you do have clout in Washington. Yeah, right? you have influence, and maybe it's not a serious influence, but you do know people, mm -hmm. right? And you have funds. And the government recognizes you as an interlocutor, like someone that we could talk to to uh, represent the Muslim community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like, have they? Tell me about what they've done. 
to help his case because I'm sure they've done yeah. something. They've got to have done something because to not to mm. totally drop the ball on this, you know, at least there should be a push every once in a while to try to do something. Yeah. I know the Obama administration, uh, the empower towards the end of the Obama administration, they introduced a call for Barack Obama to pardon Imam Jamil Al-Amin. Yeah. But that's really all I know of substantial so far. Cornell West, I met him at an event a couple of months ago, right yeah. before I was writing the article. And I told him that I was writing this article and he goes, uh, he goes, Atrap Brown, he says, that brother got framed. And then um, he says to me, he goes, he has a Muslim name now, right? And I was like, yeah, Jamil Al-Amin. And uh, I was like, you know, would you be able to help publicize the case? And he goes, let's do it right now. And we were in a lecture hall and he takes me over to a room and he's like, let's make a video of me, like saying I'm in solidarity with the Imam, that I stand with him, that I support his retrial coming up, all this sort of stuff. And he says, uh, you know, just post that on social media. That's it was, great. It was amazing. He That's was like, great. just in the moment, he's like, yeah, let's do it right now. That's great. There's an organization that goes around for the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And for, for usually they start with death row cases. Is he on death row? Because he shot cops. Yeah. I think it's life or the, without... The, the accusation is cops. Yeah. yeah. Life without parole. But I don't think he's on death row. I think it's just a life sentence. What's the, what's the name of the organization that goes... There's an organization that goes around uh, using usually DNA evidence uh-huh. to get people off of death row. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I just can't remember what they're called, though. They're, it's an amazing organization, mm-hmm. right? And it almost... It will not take a case unless it's like 95% chance that they're going to get the person off mm-hmm. because of DNA evidence, right? So it's usually slam dunk cases, mm-hmm. but I wonder if we can get some kind of organization like that on on this case. Uh, you know, but as a, as a thinker, he has so much to offer because yeah. people talk about like Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and all these sorts of people, but these people weren't able to build organizations. Malcolm X mostly because he only lived ten months as a Sunni Muslim, yeah. but Imam Jamil Al Amin, he's someone who he really was able to create a community and he was really able to develop an Islamic critique of the the sort of leftist activism that you see today, that it's incomplete because it lacks this metaphysical element. So that there's two parts of this uh, quote that you said is the person who said it and his personal story, mm-hmm. which to me is like is like a martyr for his cause, right? He's like lost his life. He's a living martyr yeah. in a sense. Like the Prophet has the concept that there are orphans with parents who are alive, right? Mm-hmm. That's which is the abandoned kids. And then there's in this sense, you know, uh, a martyr for his cause who's basically ignored, right? His own community has ignored him, uh, you know. Uh, but then there's also the thought. And that idea is such a huge idea right now. And my take is that human beings love justice by nature. We hate oppression and love justice. But the question now comes, where do we get our justice from? What lens do we view justice from? Sheikh Hamza Yusuf had a clip which some people were talking about recently and they were talking about it to me for yeah I mean, a, a little thing that was not a huge thing but it was significant to discuss but the point of the clip was this exact thing that what is our view of attaining justice is our view going to be a purely materialist political materialistic view or is it going to be a metaphysical view a metaphysical view in which we take into account a number of things number one what i'm receiving right now it could be a one of three things I could maybe, my oppression could be that I'm being purified for my sins. In that case, yeah, you're always going to fight back oppression, but sabr, patience. Number two, if I'm reacting well, I'm actually improving because of this, then this was a blessing for me. 
right? Mm-hmm. If someone, for example, robbed me all my wealth, and I said, all right, now, now I'm poor, now, now I have nothing, but, uh, so I'll just, just start, turn to Allah, go to the masjid now because I have nothing else to do, right? Actually, I improved, right? Mm-hmm. I, I became better. Doesn't mean I don't prosecute and try to get my wealth back. Of but my not. view yeah. of it was that this crime came was actually from Allah for my benefit. So it changes my my heart, right? It changes my attitude. The third thing is that if this oppression is coming and I'm getting worse, and I'm starting to slam stuff and go drink and uh, and get worse and skip my salah and have no faith in Allah, then it's a punishment. So that's the first metaphysical view of what's going on. That's the first thing. Secondly, is we need a, be- a standard. To ask what is justice in the first place? Like what's wrong in the first place? Mm-hmm. Certain things are actually not wrong that people think are wrong. And certain things are not right that people think are right. Mm-hmm. For example, Sharia has a view on taxation. Many people think that all oh, these guys, uh, you know, putting their money in the Cayman Islands and all that stuff. And they're the biggest criminals and they don't pay taxes. Wait a second. Actually, Sharia doesn't require people, doesn't allow the Sultan to just take taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. So ta- that's just one example. Yeah. So the second, so the first point is what's going on. The second point is uh, how do I view or, or how do I, what do I view as to be justice and not justice in the first place? And then the third view is how do I deal with my oppressor? Right. Mm-hmm. That's a third view, but it's going to be informed by the first one. So that's where the metaphysical view uh, of justice and oppression is so critical, so important. Right. Uh, but number two is not just what is justice, but how do I deal? And so number three is how do I fix the situation? Right. In what ways am I allowed? Can I burn the whole house down? All right. Or do I have to be selective? Am I can I can I blame a whole generation of people, a whole group of people? Right. Or can I be? It's amazing how we have a, uh, the, 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 the social justice worldview doesn't want any groupings of people. Right. Don't mm-hmm. group people. Don't lump people together. But then things like cops or whatever, right? They're all grouped together. Yeah. The rich are all grouped together, if you notice. Mm-hmm. Like the, the privileged are all grouped together. Oppressor and oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. So like they don't want groupings, you know, you don't don't group us into men and women, or for example, right? Don't group us into this out or the other. But then when they come to the oppressors, they're completely grouping everyone together. Oh. Right. So in any event, keep going, keep talking about uh, this comment by Imam Jamil. So he goes on to say that you know, um, we've been involved in the civil rights struggle, but he yeah. says we can't just sloganeer. Sloganeering isn't gonna make a isn't gonna change us. Yeah. And he says the first step in changing society around is to change yourself around. Mm. And then he quotes verse eleven of Surah Rad, yeah. that God doesn't change the condition of a people until they first change what's in themselves. Yeah. But also in regard to kind of like what Sheikh Hamza Yusuf said, I feel like a lot of times um, I reject the idea that we're quietists. Yeah. I think that we need to speak out against injustice, that when we see something wrong, we need to speak out. But we recognize that this world isn't all that there is. Well, and one of the um, main points that I was, uh, I felt, I don't know if he was saying it explicitly or not, but mm-hmm. what I felt came across is that when you get conquered, the answer isn't to say, well, everyone conquers. People got conquered. We conquered. Oh. Now we get conquered. No, yeah. the answer actually is to get up and unconquer yourself. Exactly. Right? That's the answer. Mm-hmm. So the, the analogy between Palestine and the Native Americans is mm-hmm. totally wrong because the Native Americans, they tried and lost. It's over. It's mm-hmm. been over. Right? You can't resurrect that battle. But mm-hmm. 
This one is a battle that's still going on. This one is a battle that's still going on. There's still life in this battle. And the answer isn't to say, well, people win and lose. No, the answer is go back and win, yeah. right? And if you got conquered, I'm all for the idea that, hey, conquest happened. Stop whining. But stop whining and reconquer your conqueror, mm-hmm. right? And then also, like, Native Americans, there's so much injustice being done to them even now. So they deserve yeah. reparations and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, I feel like anytime you take a metaphysical view of anything, it oftentimes sort of paralyzes you. Like, if I do poorly on a test and I say, oh, what's the metaphysical reason for this? If I told my dad that, he would, like, hit me on the head and he'd yeah. be like, go study. So let's talk about this. This is a very important point that you bring up. Where are the ways that metaphysical views of justice and oppression could go wrong? Mm -hmm. And they can go wrong in confusing the divine will and the divine law. Sacred will, the will of of Allah Ta'ala, which we call irada kawniya, what Allah has allowed to happen in the world, right? And versus what Allah wants us to do in the world, right? So just because Allah has allowed something to happen doesn't mean he endorses Right. So the best example is لا يرضى لعباده الكفر. He's not content. He's not pleased with his with his creation, his belief, uh, servants to go into disbelief. Right. But he allowed it to happen, and nothing happens except by the will of Allah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he allows things to happen that he is displeased with. So on the one hand, that's why I said you have to take it down to one, two, and three. Number one, what is going on? Am I being punished for sins that I've done? Which means that as soon as I undo those sins, the door of justice will open up, right? And I'll and the pathway will open up for me to get my rest, my restitution or my justice. Or am I being, is this improving me? Is this helping me out, right? So the first person on our target is the first vision is not the oppressor always. It is Allah Ta'ala. What is the wisdom behind this? The second thing is, is what's happening disliked by me or is it an un, uh, an, an injustice? So what is vulm? What is injustice? Uh-huh. Is being rich an injustice? Mm-hmm. Right? Is being able-bodied an injustice? Should I feel guilty if I have a good day? Right? Uh-huh. Should I feel guilty if I'm in a good mood? Mm-hmm. Right? So we have to separate that too. We have to know exactly what is injustice and what is justice. If, if I'm a millionaire and I enjoy myself on yachts all day and i pay my zakat right i pay my zakat i'm generous to my guests but i don't do any sadaqah besides that technically i haven't done injustice you've done nothing wrong i've done nothing wrong. i'm not great i'm Uh not good right yeah but you meet the bare minimum yeah i'm not good Uh uh-huh because zakat paying your zakat is is excellent right it's a fart but i haven't done anything more than that Mm -hmm. right but i've done my zakat but so we have to know what is justice what is wrong? Mm-hmm. What is right? And number three, now how do I deal with my oppressor? Do I deal with my oppressor? Uh, uh, what is the manner of dealing with the oppressor? Is another is the third question. All right. Uh, do I deal with him by blaming him and everyone who looks like him? By blaming him and everyone in his circle? Like where do I, where do I go? Where do I stop? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a lot to say about that. We do blame the assistance of the oppressors. Mm-hmm. Like Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, when a guard, a prison guard, uh, got close to him in the jail, because mm-hmm. he's just a prison guard, right? He's yeah. just, he's not like, he's just an employee of the government, okay? Uh, and he got close to him and he would let him out of the cell and they would eat at night. And then uh, one day he says that the Quran speaks about Fir'aun and Haman and, and the soldiers, right? 
And then the hadith talks about those who help the oppressor, right? He said, but Imam, am I one of them? Because all I do is, I'm, this is just my job, right? I'm not trying to help the, uh, the Khalifa to oppress you, right? Imam Ahmed says, you're not one of those who help the oppressors. You are the oppressor. You are the oppressor. <laughs> those who help the oppressors is the one who brings him his comb, oh. right? The one who cooks his food. Those are the ones who help the oppressor. So our Sharia is pretty strict on staying away from oppression. Mm-hmm. In any event, the way that metaphysical views can go wrong is by separating and not listing having these three points. Mm-hmm. Is having only the first point. Well, what's the wisdom behind this? Yeah. All right. You figured out the wisdom. The wisdom is that you didn't study hard enough, right? Uh-huh. The wisdom is that uh, there is no wisdom. Uh, in the sense that not there is no wisdom. There, there is nothing to blame. But you did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. One of the wisdoms is that life is a test. Life happens. But that happens in life. That's one of the wisdoms. Mm-hmm. Right? React. Do something now. Yeah. So there's not always this. Sometimes there's not always something specific. Sometimes it's just the way of life. And I think the, sta- the state of our Oma today is more of that's the way of civilizations. It's the way of life. Right? Religions, the message of religions people stop being zealous about it and taking it seriously after like a millennium and a half. Mm-hmm. In, if you look at in comparative religion, there was a book written about this that got my attention. It said every religion at the year 1400, it starts to collapse. It starts to water down. Water down, yeah. right? So this is it's almost like every human being at the age of 80 starts to get really old, right? Uh-huh. It's just it's not Muslim, Kafir, or otherwise. It's not a sin that you did. When you get old, it's not because you sinned, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's just the way of life. And sometimes oppression, that's the way of life. Now redre- Now, now we move to the second point. Because the first point is to fix your head. To get your head right. To get you out of any of these mental pathologies or uh, psychosis that oppression can lead to. So it's a spiritual uh, remedy that you can ponder this and know that the source of everything is Allah. But now you have to move to the second thing. How you do I, to, how, yeah, you how do act? I act? Yeah. And when you act... Anger is a good thing mm-hmm. if you channel it properly. Mm-hmm. James Cohn talks about this. He talks God, about a righteous God. anger. You have to have righteous anger, uh-huh. right? But if it's not rooted in number one, which is you've pondered the metaphysics of the matter, right? And you know the source. You see the bigger picture. You see the bigger picture. And now you know that this anger, you can only turn it on and off for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. And then you have to observe the law of number three. Mm-hmm. What do I do with my oppressor? Do I just burn his house down? Do I take him to court? Can I kill him? Right? All of these things with my oppressor, you have to control yourself with number three. Those, that, this is the important question of where a, uh, metaphysics can go wrong. The metaphysical view can go wrong. And I think a lot of people think that when we say you have to look at the spiritual angle, they only think of number one. Let's yeah. look at the wisdom and sit down and get slapped around. Exactly. Yeah. One man in Palestine told me this. I was in East Jerusalem. Yeah. Maybe half a mile from Masjid Al-Aqsa. Yeah. And I was at this leftist bookstore. Yeah. And um, I'm talking to one of the... I want to go to Masjid Al-Aqsa um, after Isha. Mm-hmm. And I say to the guy, you know, um, yeah, I'm going to go to Masjid Al-Aqsa after your bookshop closes down. Yeah. And he says to me, he goes, uh, why do you want to go there? And I say, you know, because it's the third holiest site in Islam. This is where the Prophet Muhammad a.s. led all the prophets in prayer, all these sorts of things. And he goes, well, Al-Aqsa is closed after Isha. And I, I say to him, I'm like... 
that doesn't make any sense. Like, why is it closed after Isha? And he says to me, he goes, uh, Israelis have been occupying Jerusalem for 70 years. He's like, do you think that makes sense? <laughs> and uh, that's when I realized that it's closed after Isha because of the Israeli soldiers and all that. Yeah. And then he says to me, he goes, uh, you know, he's like, I actually hate going to Al-Aqsa. He's like, because when I go there, everyone there seems to be so satisfied. We're living under occupation, yeah. and these people don't want to do anything about it. These people sit around and do nothing. So it calmed them down too much. Yeah, see. and you can look at this in two different ways. This is the way of the believer that metaphysically, no matter what happens to us, we say Alhamdulillah ala kulli hal. We say Alhamdulillah in every situation. Yeah. But then also in another way, it, when it calms you down too much, then you are losing this Islamic duty of, of justice. True. Like yeah. uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Nayas, he was this uh, Senegalese uh, Tijani Sheikh who would resist French colonialism. Yeah. And the French used to say about him, they used to say, I wish he would just stay on his prayer mat like all the other yeah. Marabouts. <laughs> I wish he would stay on his prayer mat like all the other Sheikhs. And his response was, if the Prophet Muhammad just stayed on his prayer mat all the time, Islam would have never left Medina. True. And and the, there's this uh, saying that the Sayyidina Dawood saw the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu in the in the Alwah. And he said, I, oh Allah, I see in the Book of Destiny a people with their a prayer capes on their back, their prayer shawls on their backs, and their swords in their sides, right? Mm -hmm. So at nighttime, they're, these, uh, they're in this vigil and this ibadah, right, uh, and this uh, worship. And in the daytime, they're taking their sh uh, swords out and their shields and they're fighting. So that's the, uh, the, the real approach of a moment. Now, one of the points that you were making here is that it does make you it, fighting oppression is not always going to be in the same manner and that's where we said how is the justice going to be uh, attained now one of the ways is the ayah that you talked about that allah does not change people until unless they change themselves and allah ta'ala is his good he does not accept except what is good in allah tayyibun la yaqbalu illa tayyiba so uh, victory we know for sure will not come to the ummah from profligates Mm -hmm. it, you will not be a person of we will not have a generation on zina on uh skipping salah on no no quran right and expect victory from them mm -hmm. so you can have two people with the same purposes but their agenda their manner of going about it is totally different mm -hmm. so a lot of these people say oh if you're not some on some uh a marching if you're not posting if you're not writing then you're not helping the cause of justice you're not fighting the oppression you're accepting them no sometimes the the actual soul of the ummah needs to be cleaned out first we need to get our behavior in accord with the type of description that allah gives victory to because when he gives in surah al-isra at the beginning and the end he speaks about uh, Al-Aqsa, and he says it's going to be lost. He mm -hmm. prophecies that you're going to enter it a second time, right? Uh -huh. As you entered it the first time. So he's actually telling us it's going to be lost. By, by the muqtada of that statement is that when you conquer it the second time, right? Uh -huh. As you conquered it the first time, which indicates that between the first and second, there you're must be a loss, right? Yeah. But how does Allah describe those people? He calls them ibad al our worshipers, mm -hmm. our servants. So they are described as people who are pious, who are worshipful, who have all this zeal, right, for the truth, both inwardly and outwardly. So if, I, if I'm looking around and we have a generation of people who are way off, uh, and I'm not judging, I'm saying hypothetically, uh -huh. right? Hypothetically, if you had such a generation, 
you can't say let's let's go fight the oppressor you got to fix yourself first exactly right yeah. and people look at david and goliath Sayyidina Dawood, he came at the end of a generation of work done by the prophet some people call him prophet shamuel samuel that mm -hmm. prophet samuel spent a generation getting these people back to basic obedience just mm -hmm. basic obedience right stop drinking stop doing zina and start praying and start fasting and start giving sadaqah and keeping your family ties basic obedience then they were able to now take on talut right mm -hmm. i mean jalut right and they were given a king etc so uh we have our method we know have having belief being rooted in belief in allah and the seculars have their method right the seculars have their the the the, the materialists have their method everyone loves justice but marxists the marxist approach seems to be the only the one of the credits due to marx is that he's the one who put together a purely materialist agenda for justice right mm -hmm. so if you don't have belief in allah but you do love justice that's your guy uh -huh. right he's your guy but it's morphed into something else now it's mm -hmm. not just the owners of the of manufacturing versus the working class it's now anyone with any privilege versus those who have privilege i think the story of prophet musa al-islam also gives us a, a really good parable on fighting injustice yeah. because if you see the pharaoh as this version of structural oppression yeah. musa al-islam he has to, he's told to put his staff down yeah. and then the red sea opens up and then they cross and then he goes to the mount sinai for khalwa so it shows that once you beat the structural oppression you still have to do your own purification the job isn't finished once you complete your structural oppression and then when he comes back what are the people doing they're worshiping a golden calf yeah. so it shows that okay you might be free in a sense of structural injustice but you are still worshiping a calf you still have more work to do on yourself yeah you're... and that's what the marxists don't understand that once you get rid of your pharaohs once you're living free in the desert you still there's still more work to be done yeah so for us justice is just the starting point of how things should be so that we could start our real work uh -huh. and our real work is mimicking the heavens on earth mm -hmm. becoming sacred sanctifying ourselves that's the real work uh -huh. we just need justice to be able to work right? yeah so but if you don't have that second agenda and for us if you look at it justice is the beginning the 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 second half might is like 90 percent of the work uh -huh. right that's like the bigger agenda. Yeah. So if you're a, a, a complete materialist and justice is your only end, and you don't really have an answer of what are you going to do afterwards, mm. right? So you need to actually continue to find flaws so that you can stay in business, right? So that you can stay active because what else? So you can have purpose. Because if everything is set perfectly, uh -huh. then you're actually, you have no purpose. Yeah. So you need a purpose. Just like a lot of those the Islamic, the Muslim version of that are those types that they were, I guess, influenced by Marxist thought. And they're all about the tyrant, right? The tyrant, the tyrant, the tyrant. So, but once the tyrant was gone, I think they found that they have no purpose, right? Uh -huh. And then once the tyrant came back, a new tyrant came, they had renewed purpose uh -huh. because it was an incomplete message, right? And justice for us is just getting things right in order so that we can do the real job. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that might take a huge effort, but that's how we view things. Mm -hmm. So, the Marxists, in a sense, uh, have to continue to produce villains, and that's and critical theory is going down that route. 
yeah. right? It just produces. Uh, the villain is just it, it, the 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 list is getting is growing. Deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct. Yeah. yeah. So, did you study critical theory? A little bit. You had yeah. to, right? Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to. It, yeah. But did you take it as like a couple courses or what? So, we had this one class where we learned methodologies of studying religion, yeah. and we spent a whole week on critical theory. And then I've read just Foucault and that sort of stuff, Judith Butler, all of that. So in case some of our listeners are wondering, how does critical theory derive from Marx? What's the Senate? So critical theory mixes Marxism with a sort of postmodernism, you could say. And there's this idea in critical theory that there's no objective truth, and basically everything comes down to power. And you shouldn't essentialize anything. So nothing has a core, but it's all a symbolism for power. So um, one example would be um, when the rulers who rule over you, there's no essential nature to their rule. They just rule because they have more power than you and you have less power than them. And therefore, their rule over you just comes back down to power. So um, it's a really, really rudimentary, really basic explanation of critical theory. But essentially, everything comes down to power and there's no essentializing anything. And it gets really, really difficult because um, there's this one Syrian thinker who criticized Edward Said's Orientalism using sort of this critical theory approach. He says, you say these European thinkers misrepresent the Orient, the, the Muslim world, the third world, the global south, whatever you want to call it. But he says, in doing that, you're sort of essentializing the Orient. You're saying that there's some core to the Muslim world, there's some core to the East, that there's some core to the global south. And he goes, this is a mistake because you know, there are no essentials. So it's really this, like, ideology that's very hollow in a sense. But I also think there are benefits in critical theory. And I think that anything that we do, we need to, like, Islamically critique it. So there is a bit of truth to these ideas of that a lot of things in life go down to power. Oh, that's why I meant, uh, these, these ideas are attractive, because they always begin with certain truths mm-hmm. and certain oppressions that are actually happening their solutions for it and their analysis might be something else. Uh-huh. All right, continue. But there are actually theories that Marx gets a lot of his ideas from religion. That he was influenced a lot by his Jewish upbringing mm-hmm. and that when he talks about this world post-revolution, uh, you consider the revolution kind of sort of as the day of judgment and post-revolution is essentially heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's why so often people say Marxists want heaven on earth yeah. because they literally do want heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Marxist vision, it's you work, you work, you work for the revolution. The revolution comes and then heaven comes on this earth. Okay. If you look at the Muslim vision, you work, you work, you work, you struggle. The day of judgment comes. Yeah. That's the reward for your struggle. And then you get actual heaven. Yeah. So the, the reason that these ideologies are so attractive is because oftentimes they're very close to what's true, mm-hmm. but they're like two steps like away. Yeah. It's interesting because critical theory in a sense is an idea. Okay. Well, wouldn't the ultimate critique of it be that this idea itself is a power play Uh against those in power? Yeah. And you could say it essentializes those in power. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an idea, right? But who's to say that you're sort of essentializing your own idea, Uh right? Who's to say that this whole idea, its real motive is a a power play against those in power, Mm -hmm. right? Because you can't have an idea that says that there is no, nothing has an essence, a core, and everything is about power. 
because I could just turn it around and say, well, your idea too was a power play. Yeah, that essentializes. Like Marx himself is so jealous of uh, of these owners of the production or whatever, right? And he's a complete materialist, right? So justice then is what? If yeah. you're a complete materialist. Mm-hmm. So Marx, his, his own idea should also be, I always viewed it as, that's just your, you didn't have the money or the power, so you used ideas, but you did have a brain and an ability to write, which they didn't. Uh-huh. So you just use that, right, as your bludgeon mm-hmm. against the rich and the powerful, which you just wanted. That's really, ultimately, I've always viewed it, that's really what you wanted, uh-huh. right? But you're just using ideas. Instead be- of money. Because you don't have any money or power. Yeah, but right? then it becomes interesting because another thing about these Marxists is a lot of them were very wealthy. So Lenin grew up very wealthy yeah. and then uses this idea of the of hating the wealthy and overthrowing them as a means of gaining power. So it's sort yeah. of... So what was it? Is he had some issue with his grandfather or his dad or something? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't studied Lenin. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think Shariati's critique of Marxism is also very interesting. Let's hear it. So Ali Shariati was this 20th century Iranian thinker, and he was an Islamist, yeah. and he incorporates a lot of Marxism in his thought. So he believes in this Leninist idea of a vanguard. So he says that vanguard is, it comes from this idea of Lenin, that the the poor people don't overthrow the masses, but it's people who have achieved class consciousness. So it's this vanguard and they overthrow. And Qutb ascribes this also. Qutb uses the word uh, talia in his uh, book, yeah. which is straight from Lenin. There's so, there's some truth to that. Like, like yeah. you do, you're going to need some of the rich to help change the situation. Some of the elite, you can say. Uh huh. Yeah. So Shariati uh, takes this idea. So he incorporates a lot of Marxist ideas, yeah. but then he also writes this book called Marxism and Other Western Fallacies. Before you continue, I wouldn't even say that's necessarily a Marxist idea. Uh-huh. It's just an observation that he made, which uh-huh. actually probably is true. That in any time that you have major change, you do need some people who are inside. Right, I mean, Prophet Musa was inside. Yeah, Prophet Muhammad was inside. Quraysh, is it, yeah. Right, so everyone is on the Prophet uh, Isa ibn Maryam was on the inside, uh-huh. and they had some some elites with them to help change the system. So that's like an observation. Mm-hmm. It's not like necessarily specifically Marxist. But anyway, yeah. continue. It's also that. interesting to see Marxism as an ideology versus Marxism as like a. Marxists would call it a science, mm-hmm. but sort of as a means of understanding the world. Okay, and I think it's very beneficial to look at the world from a bunch of different perspectives. And the Marxist perspective is just one of them where you yeah. can see different things. Mm-hmm. But so Shariati says that true redistribution of wealth, true justice can't be achieved without a spiritual ethic. Mm-hmm. So he says, what you'll notice is when these Marxists go into power is they don't establish just societies, but the central governing party that rules the Marxist state, they become just as corrupt as the capitalists that they overthrew, and they exploit just as much. And he says that's because those in power, they need a spiritual ethic that sort of guides them. Because without that spirituality, if they have no accountability, then they're going to be just as bad. Yeah, I mean, you're you're human beings at the end of the day. Whether Uh Whatever you ascribe to, you need to have a reason to stop your temptations and your desires and you need to have an agenda telling you what to do right like i need an agenda a a plan of what to do with my success with my wealth with my blessings etc if you don't have that then you end up with what they call these champagne socialists right yeah is that what they call them exactly so shariati when he talks about this he says that if you want a ruler who had a spiritual ethic 
with his rule, someone who answered to God, he gives the example of Ali ibn Abi Talib radhi anhu. Yeah. And I feel like his Shiism actually limits his, limits him here. Mm. Because if you look at the first three Khulafa al-Rashidin, first four Khulafa al-Rashidin, yeah. they were all like this. Yeah. Like you look at the example of Umar al-Khattab radhi anhu, when there's a famine, he says that if the Muslims aren't able to eat, if the people aren't able to eat, then I'm only going to be able to eat what the people are eating. Mm. And they say he loses a lot of weight in this time. He... Um, what else happens? He loses a lot of weight. He doesn't have um, his skin gets pale because he's so sick. All of this sort of stuff. And there's another story of a man who came from far away to talk to Sayyidina Omar about the subject. And uh, he talked, and Sayyidina Omar said, "Stay for dinner." And the man stayed. And then um, the Omar uh, was served fish. Someone came and brought him a fish, and the man just devoured it like he'd never seen food before, mm-hmm. right? And Sayyidina Omar said, uh, "What is this?" He said, "I've." haven't eaten, haven't been able to afford this type of fish for seven years. Right? So Sayyidina Omar says to his servant, he said, don't bring me this fish for another seven years. He says, because I have to taste, to live and taste like the lowest common denominator as my people. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful example of, uh, of true leadership can only occur if you see the perspective of the people at the, uh, that you're serving. Right? Mm-hmm. If you see their perspective. And oftentimes when these secular justice movements gain success and they gain worldly success, like you said, their leadership no longer can see the perspective of the people and they become the next oppressors. So it only, it almost, it's like a version of Ibn Khaldun's uh, Asabiya, but it's, you know, in the, in the same sense where you, you start off as the oppressed, you rise up, but luxury softens you and you no longer even recognize the perspective you don't even know what they're going through uh-huh. right and this is what every secular movement that loves justice fine that's good but if you you end up filling it with a theory that's more poisonous than before the best explanation i heard for ibn khaldun's idea of asabiya is bad times create strong men yeah and those strong men create good times yeah. and those good times create weak men yeah. and those weak ti- uh, those weak men create weak times uh-huh. and those weak times create strong men again yeah, so, so it's a cyclical understanding of history it's this, this cycle and, and these ideas whenever people say Ibn Khaldun or that statement which I think was Socrates or well, who was it Aristotle or Socrates or something? I don't know actually someone yeah. but these are all observed realities right so yeah that person may have said it Mm-hmm. been the first one to say it but ultimately it's an observed reality and and we take our observed realities from anywhere the hadith wisdom is the lost beast of the believer so wherever he finds it he's it more rightful it. to it uh-huh. he's more rightful to it because he's going to apply it in the context of revelation right but all those observed realities you know you could take that stuff from anyone and mm-hmm. that's where all of these secular justice movements they do start off with some great observations but what are they filling it with Mm-hmm. Where they get in their ethics from, etc. So uh, that's why these uh, this uh, social justice movement of today should really be called the secular justice movement, <laughs> right? Because it, it, it essential it, it's sort of like you said about essentializing, right? It actually gives them the right. It assumes that they have the right to define justice, mm-hmm. right? Which they don't. Neither do they have the right, nor is their claim substantiated by anything except you know, the rabble that they're rousing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the masses that they're acquiring. And that doesn't make something right. Mm-hmm. Okay, And they don't even have that. Yeah. Like, they they have numbers, but they don't have 
mass numbers, like massive in the sense that it's a whole civilization being established upon this. It, they're getting there, right? But they don't. And even if they did, it wouldn't make it right. Mm -hmm. So we should really change this definition to, or this name, to secular justice mm -hmm. because it's justice cut off from any metaphysics. And it just sees the world like an analogy I like to give is like if you're in a room and all you see is that room yeah. and you don't see outside the window, mm -hmm. then you're not going to understand the world. You're just going to understand what's in that room. Yeah. So the materialist worldview is just limited. It just does not understand everything that's going on. Their ethics as well as do what you need as long as it doesn't harm anyone else is so short sighted because you're limiting uh, harm to what only what you could see. Mm -hmm. Like you don't do you think that harm occurs only in one step or sometimes it takes, you know, 50 steps. So cancer, where does it come from? Does this when you when you get diagnosed with cancer, is it something you ate yesterday or something you were you've been eating, you mm -hmm. know, for 20 years? Right. Or been consuming or breathing in. Right. Uh, lung cancer doesn't happen because you smoked a cigarette yesterday. Lung cancer happens because you've been smoking the cigarette for 20, 50, 30, 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. So if we liken this to a chess match, if you're playing chess and you take the philosophy that you can make any move you want as long as your pawn doesn't get eaten, right? Or your bishop doesn't get eaten in that spot. You're not walking into a trap, right? But what you end up doing is that game's going to be really short because within a few moves, you've trapped yourself. Uh -huh. And that trap is just going to be a slow death. So this idea that do whatever you want unless you don't harm someone also is built into that the assumption that harm is only that which is immediate. Mm -hmm. And that's an absurd, in, in everything it's absurd, right? In uh, legally speaking, right, uh, certain precedents are disallowed. They don't let them in because of harm that's, that, would have hap that would happen way in the future. Way later, right? Yeah. Health-wise, Cheetos doesn't harm me today, mm -hmm. right? But if I keep doing this, one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be like 30 pounds overweight, right? Mm -hmm. From what? From one habit. Literally, it's literally one habit that was bad for you over time. Everything else was fine. This is one bad, bad habit, a ma masked up. When they do economics with people, they, they don't look at the one-time car accident. They don't look at that, your financial planning. They look at your habits. Mm -hmm. If you have a habit that every day you buy four, $4.50 on a latte, right? This is a bad habit because that money amounts to, in, in, in years, to a huge amount. If you're sloppy, you lose something, you just buy another one instead of looking for it. Instead of learning to put stuff where they belong, it's a habit. So habits are far more important in all these spheres than one-off incidents. So this idea that harm is only that which I can see right now, it's just such a, a naive thing and it doesn't work in ethics. Mm -hmm. I also think um, a lot of these liberal moral philosophers... If you ask them, what is the right step to take in society? What is the good thing to do? They just say, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. Yeah. They're sort of avoiding the question. Yeah. Whereas if you ask a Muslim ethicist, we say, the goal is marifah. The goal is to know Allah. And the path to knowing Allah is the sharia, is having the right aqidah, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. We have a, a program, a set of things that you have. We have a positive program. Yeah. This is what to do. They're what just basically do. telling you what not to do, mm -hmm. right? Just uh, uh, Which itself is problematic for, for the reasons we just said. Now, one of the things about this is the intersection between uh, these guys and Muslims is the issue of Palestine. Mm -hmm. And in America, it's the issue of, I guess you can call it rights or civil rights. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and I have always warned about this, but to make it much simpler, right, the analogy I like to give is 
if you're drowning and Iblis comes and puts his hand out to save you, what are you going to do? Not taking that hand. I'm not taking that hand. I don't want to owe him, right? Uh I'm smacking his hand away real quick before I get tempted to take it. And we've had years now to discuss this issue. And I'm still of the position that I don't want the liberals left to help me. I don't want the alt-right to help me, right? And I don't even want their help. You know, I can only speak for myself. But if the left was to swoop in and save the day in Palestine, we would owe them. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Right, so we might be shifting merely from one harm to another. But I would say I'm opposed to, I guess, liberalism as a moral ideology. But I think political liberalism is actually something that Muslims benefit from, because political liberalism is all about giving people freedom of expression, freedom of religion, all of that. So as long as you don't understand it as a moral ideology, but you understand it as a political ideology that allows different people to operate, then it gives Muslims a lot of space. But it gives Muslims a lot of space, but we don't even believe in that. You can't separate morals from law. All laws are based on benefit and harm as defined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mm-hmm. and his messenger. Right? All laws are based on benefit and harm. At benefit and harm as derived, described by God and his prophet. So we can't, you can never really separate morals from political. Moral from political. And you can never separate moral from metaphysical. Right? You have to know what, you have to have, make a, a statement about what exists first. Mm-hmm. And what's true and real before you make what's ethical, a determination on what's ethical. And once you make a determination on what's ethical and moral, then your law derives from that. So let's say hypothetically someone helped you and said, listen, let's apply liberal politics, all right? Liberalism as a political structure to you. Now, what are you going to turn around when your law has determinations on religions? Right and on expressions mm-hmm. that conflict with liberalism, you would conflict with you're conflict. So we just happen to be benefiting from it. I didn't choose to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. I happen to be benefiting from it. Does it mean I'm forced to adopt it? Mm-hmm. Right. Just because I happen to find myself existing in a world where liberal politics allows me to live a great life and practice my deen and all that stuff, does not bind me, obligate me at all to ab- adopt it. Or to stay silent on the critique of it. Because I never chose it. Uh-huh. Right? I never chose it. Uh-huh. And I'm stuck with it. But I'm benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. it there's, no, there's, no, there's no hypocrisy in that. The hypocrisy is, if I chose it, okay, I chose a principle to benefit me now, and then tomorrow when I'm in charge, I throw that principle you in throw the that principle. That's yeah. the hypocrisy. Uh-huh. But being born into it, I'm telling you right now, it's not what I believe. Uh-huh. Right. Therefore, I'll keep benefiting from it. No problem. Right. But I mean, do you, we, we wouldn't benefit, for example, we wouldn't espouse uh, a lot. Of, like, trying to, I'm trying to think of a simple example. Uh-huh. Right. A simpler example of day to day things that we wouldn't espouse, but we benefit from. Mm-hmm. OK. Many people who inherit money, their dads may have worked in a job that was mixed. The money's mixed. Halal and haram is mixed. He doesn't espouse it. He inherits it. It becomes halal for him to inherit. Yeah, right? You take the money and... Yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're, you don't have to ask. Uh-huh. You don't even have to ask. right? Like if I'm doing a trade with somebody and I'm selling you a, a Kit Kat at the 7-Eleven and you pay me $1.50, I don't have to ask where you got your money from. Uh-huh. I'm benefiting from you as a customer. Then I discover later on that you as a customer are a drug dealer. Okay. All that money that I made, it's still halal for me. I mean, I, uh, in the past, I used, I made it, I used it. 
that's not even a good example because it's more I have more control I have no no control over what society I'm born in and what civilization I live in but the idea that our religion does have things to say on an expression on religious worship right we can't deny that just because we're benefiting from a liberal political order Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you look if this liberal political order is your sacred cow and you may, you reorient your citizenship, U.S. citizenship, to ascribing to these beliefs that it's not just loyalty to the flag, it's not just following the law and the Constitution, you must believe in this liberal political order, uh-huh. you say, thank you very much, I'm out. Because uh-huh. I don't, I, I won't, I, I don't... I, to mutually, we mutually agree to part ways, mm-hmm. and I'll find myself the space to live in Turkey. Or, or but they haven't done that, right? Uh-huh. Which is their fault. Yeah. If they really want that, then they should actually make a statement of that uh, that this is what we believe. But don't you think? I guess like ideologically, obviously, like I don't see political liberalism as like oh, this is ideologically the ideal way to run a state, but I see this as, oh, it works, and I think it's imperative for Muslims to be a part of it, because if we're not a part of it, then we get eaten up. Well, there, there are a couple things, first of all. Firstly, in Sharia, there are many things in Sharia that the implementation of which would not be the right timing or may bring about a greater harm. Now, someone might say, how can you say that, astaghfirullah? First of all, if you've ever studied the Khulafa al-Rashidin and their application of hudud punishments, mm-hmm. you'll see that they're suspending it all the time. All the time, yeah. All the time. Darura, maslaha. Yes, for yeah. because of a greater harm. Uh-huh. Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, the Prophet ﷺ said, when, if the Khawarij were to come out and he described them, he said, I would kill them all. Prophet mm-hmm. ﷺ said that, right? Now, in whose time did they come out? Sayyidina Ali's time. Yeah. What did he do to them? He fought them, he neutralized them, and they basically ran away and went to live in their own villages and mosques. They said, oh, Ali, will you keep fighting them? He said, as long as they don't harm us, they can live freely in their mosques and, and in their villages, right? So he didn't kill them. But guess what? He's the one who narrates that hadith from the Prophet mm-hmm. right? So he's the one who narrated the hadith, but he also understood the hadith. And he understood that the Prophet is saying that provided that that's what brings the benefit mm-hmm. that the cure doesn't produce another harm another ailment all right let's look at the what is the rule on rebels rebels should be killed mm-hmm. right to say north man get rebelled upon he did mm-hmm. what more is it that they surrounded his house and they couldn't let him leave that's mm-hmm. rebellion right yeah. that's armed rebellion he didn't kill them they went should we fight them no should mm-hmm. we wait should we stop no well what is that he made a deduction in his mind or he made an analysis in his mind that there will be greater harm in fighting a war in Medina than in following that ruling. Uh-huh. So all hudud punishments, all mu'amalat rulings are about benefits and harms. So when we say that our religion has you know, commentary uh, and, and laws and prohibitions on certain types of expression, on certain types of, uh, of worship, on temples that can be built, on things you can... That doesn't necessarily mean that every Muslim ruler at every single moment in history... Has to apply that. Is going to apply that. Yeah. Yes, because he is allowed to use discretion. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, 
if someone asked me, say, all right, you're, you're, you're in charge all of a sudden. Right now, you're in charge. I would actually take the most minimal actions required, right? Very minimal. Why? Because I know that any poke will elicit a reaction that's far worse, mm-hmm. right? When you look at part, uh, a man like Erdogan, I'm, I don't even know his politics. I don't follow. I know that in general that he's an Islamist, right? Yeah. He didn't go on applying a lot of things. In Sharia, I've never seen him go and applying a lot of things in Sharia and prohibiting a lot. There's still nude beaches in Turkey, right? Mm-hmm. There's no Sharia in Turkey. You could probably get alcohol. There's no Sharia in the sense of uh, what people want of limitation of this talk, limitation of that, that type of thing. It's not happening. It's it's like a regular country when you go there, right? Mm-hmm. But he did support and he puts money in the, through the endowments to Muslim causes, etc. And there's a lot of activity. And they're doing, they're living peacefully in that respect. They're able to teach their religion. So there is, that's an example of discretion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I say that in theory, we won't accept a liberal uh, political order, mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's a, as a belief. Yeah. As a belief on paper, that's not what we're doing. But in practice, we work with what we have. In practice, you yeah, you work with what you have. You'd be uh-huh. a complete pragmatist in practice if you... Not only now here's the here's the caveat. That's if you find yourself in charge of something. Not you sought to be in charge of something. Right now, I would not seek to be in charge of anything. Uh-huh. I wouldn't seek to be in charge of anything unless I could actually do it right. But if I find myself in charge of something, which I'm in charge of a very few things in the mm-hmm. world, right? Like you're in charge of a family, in a sense. You're in charge of a little an organization. You're in charge of uh, a masjid. Okay. Uh, at least in my resp- my role as a team player, it's a team over there in the MBIC, is the religious uh, teachings, right? So I took on those jobs because I assessed first that I can do it. Like there's nothing in the structure disallowing me to do it right, okay? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, when you live, you have to be pragmatic. You have to make concessions, right, um, that don't harm you when you're stuck. Uh-huh. Like what are the concessions that I have to make? I'm not waging war on movies, for example. Uh-huh. When I'm dealing with the youth, uh-huh. I don't. I'm not. That's not a. Oh, that's not even on. Unless it's like obviously there's the haram inside the movie, but uh-huh. if the kids are around, they're like, hey, let's go watch this and that or the other. I'm not going there because you're gonna scare them away. It's 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 lower. I'm not going there because I believe it's all halal. Uh-huh. Because it's not right. Uh-huh. Watching mutabarijat, listening, uh, having all that stuff, it's not. But where is it on my? Uh, when I tria- uh, triage, right? When you put your list of priorities, it's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I haven't done one, two, three, four, and five. You got a guy whose brain is bleeding out of his body in the emergency room, and you got a guy who's got to have a heart attack, and you got, got a guy who has a splinter. Which one are you going first? Uh-huh. If you got a splinter, I'm not even talking to you right now because not because you sh- I shouldn't. I should, but I can't. Mm-hmm. I gotta deal with the brain trauma first and the heart attack second, all right, or vice or whatever, right? So that's the idea. So when you say that living with it pragmatically, I would agree with that, provided that that responsibility was put on me, mm-hmm. not that I chose that responsibility, because you can't do that. And Sharia, you're not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to choose something which would force you then to make concessions. Mm-hmm. I guess the way I see it is. I I guess the first premise is is that Muslims should be involved in government because if they're not, then their voices are completely silenced. So that's that's also the issue of a lesser of two evils. Yeah. So you you have to. 
I would say that, yeah, you have to make that argument. You have to convince people mm-hmm. that and it's a lesser of two evils. And then the second premise is, is you have to either deal with the left that is really good on a lot of issues mm-hmm. on in terms of racial justice. They want to include you. They care for the poor. They want to expand social welfare, all of this sort of stuff. And then you have the right who you, let's say you agree with them on like social issues, yeah. on LGBTQ issues, perhaps on abortion, that sort of stuff. And then when you're making the decision, when you look at the right, it's like these people who are so concerned about, I guess, sexual morality and all these sorts of things. If you look at a lot of these right wing politicians, it's all a facade at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Like, no. You look at someone like Newt Gingrich. Yeah. He was someone who has been married all of these amount of times. And, you know, when his one of his wives was dying of cancer, he was having affairs with the nurse. And it's like, are these the people I want to align with on sexual morality? Because yeah. at the end of the day, they're the biggest hypocrites. That's true. Now, I have a, I have a question for you because I'm going to challenge something here. And this is where I have a problem supporting Muslims' involvement in government. At what level can a Muslim not sacrifice? Or, or let me rephrase this. At what, Muslim, at what level of politics would a Muslim have to sacrifice essential elements of their deen in order to survive, let alone get a job done in politics? Hmm. At what level of politics? I don't think you have to. I've, or I guess I take uh, sort of Jonathan Brown, the stance that he takes on like LGBTQ rights, that you can affirm their rights, but you don't say that it's acceptable in our religion. And I always wondered how that goes when you're talking to like gay people that you're building coalitions with, right? So I, I've done this a few times with uh, friends of mine who are homosexual or LGBTQ and all of that. And uh, I've asked them, you know, like in my religion, I say, you know, I don't make the rules. God makes the rules and I submit to the rules. Mm -hmm. And in my religion, scripture says this thing. Scholars have been saying this for the past 1400 years. So even if I were to say, oh, I don't read it that way, it doesn't mean anything because who am I? I'm just your average Muslim. I can't disagree with the consensus of 1,500 years of scholarship. But I say on a political level, I recognize that you guys should have full rights that we build coalitions, but the way that we stop is we don't say that this is acceptable in our theology. And if it were to be that if a mosque that performs only same only opposite gender marriages, if they were forced to do that, I would consider that a violation of religious freedom. And normally when I talk to people about this, and usually we have like a, a sense of closeness at this point because we've been building coalitions, we're very good friends, all this sort of stuff, they, are, they don't seem to be offended by it. They say this is the view of most Abrahamic religions. Okay. When what you're saying, there's a s- subtle issue that can become a schasm. Yeah. A huge, what is the word, chasm? I think uh, it's schism. Chasm. Uh, no, chasm. Like a, a chasm? A huge, like... Uh, <laughs> a splintering. A sp- no, no, a huge ditch. That, And that is, in your discourse, there was a separation between the political... Right and the theological. Uh huh. Now that may help you avoid a temporary the the harm of right now. However, that principle, that establishment, if you establish that principle, because that's the only way you're going to survive this, right? Mm-hmm. The only way you're going to interact with the left uh-huh. is by saying, "I'm going to give. I'm going to. I'll support this politically, but I don't support it theologically." Uh-huh. Okay. What is secularism other than that? Uh, creating this uh, bifurcation. Yeah. yeah. So there is a seed of secularism right there. Uh-huh. has been planted in order to survive and well, with the left. Uh-huh. You have to plant that seed. I'm going to argue that 
because we're both making a judgment call. Uh-huh. You're making a judgment call on what's the greater harm. Uh-huh. I'm going to make a judgment. My judgment call is looking forward. That seed, think of the amount of times it can be used and will be used. Okay? And what it will result to in a religion. And if that takes precedent in the in, amongst the intellectuals and the leaders of the religion, give it 20 years. You won't have a religion. That little tool that you applied that appeased seem to appease the LGBT, right? Or the left, I guarantee you, when it's used and used and used, you will end up with a complete secularism. Mm-hmm. You're gonna, because you're accepting yourself to say that a masjid that does not perform a same-sex marriage is in violation, right? You're accepting for those words oh. to come out of your mouth. But religious freedom trumps that idea. Trump's what idea? The idea of equality. The fact that it's legally allowed on a state level doesn't mean that all religious institutions have to abide by that. But what did you just say? That you, you just said that you held that a masjid that only performs opposite gender marriages. Uh-huh. That they shouldn't be forced to perform same-sex nikahs. Oh, that they shouldn't be. They should not be. Yeah. Oh, I thought that you said that they that they that you would say that they should be. No, okay, no, no. I see. Yeah, yeah. I see. But you got to work around that statement of. Um, Similar to like another analogy I like to give is alcohol. Yeah. Like the, from what I understand in Islamic history, you could buy alcohol on the streets in the Ottoman Empire, maybe in the time of the Khulafat Rashidin, but. But on a black market though, at least in the Khulafat Rashidin's time. Uh huh. Oh, well, like in the Ottoman times, it was sold openly. But okay. there is a. There was an understanding that... Maybe sometimes, not all the time. Not all the time, yeah. yeah. But there was an understanding that, or even amongst non-Muslims, they could sell it amongst themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this understanding that not every ruling of the Sharia applies to non-Muslims. So I get that. I get that. But when you're not obligated, mm-hmm. so the Ottomans were obligated to deal with them. They had no choice but to deal with them. They're on our, ter- on our lands, so we have to deal with them. This is the same argument that they made about the Liwats and the marriage of siblings by the, uh, by the Zoroastrians, the Zoroastrians yeah. right? You're obligated to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Here you're not obligated, right? So you can't just, okay, I'll deal with it later. Or, yeah, well, for, for that community, let them do their thing, as long as it doesn't spill into our community. Mm-hmm. You can't, so in this case, you're actually going to them and affirming something. That's where the that's where I see is a problem and is a greater harm, and therefore abstaining from that action, mm-hmm. right? And coming to the conclusion that you really cannot survive uh, in politics without end, uh, ending up contradicting yourself or your dean. Mm-hmm. That's where I come to the conclusion from. But I would say you are obligated because if there are, if there are no Muslims in government, we yeah. just continue to get stepped on. So, so I think you need Muslims there. Okay, but so you're going to sacrifice someone and basically say, all right, we're going to pick Ilhan. You go, lose your dean, go to hell, and do the job for us? Uh-huh. You're going to tell your, would you want your son going and do that stuff? But if they're saying that we support this on a political level, but we don't endorse this theologically, I don't think that's sacrificing their dean. Like, that is a big seed, a seed of a big problem, though. It causes nuance that can confuse people, but I don't think it's all-out kufr or anything of that nature. Yeah, it may, okay, let's say it's not all-out kufr, but uh-huh. we're just talking about maslaha, right? Uh-huh. I actually see that as pr- a worse problem going forward because you've now made a precedent, established a precedent that when needed, you could pull out this language, and all it is is language. It's mm-hmm. all it is is language, right? You permit the haram when you need to. You weren't forced... 
No one puts you in charge and say you're born prince and now you have to live with the and these people are underneath you and deal with them. You went and actively took this position of I'm going to permit what I need to permit, right? And separate that from my true beliefs. So that precedent is going to be used over and over and over at so many levels. You're not going to even have you're not even going to have a religion after that. Right? That's my problem where that precedent is to me a greater harm. So my the conclusion that I come to is that you don't need Muslims in government. You need influence of politicians. Uh-huh. That's what you need. Because you can't go, I can't in good conscience, right, go and uh, sacrifice another Muslim. and say, you go do it. You go be a Muslim in politics. Half the stuff you're saying is haram anyway. Let's say it's not kufr. Let's say it's haram. Uh-huh. Right? Let's say it's bid'ah. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, let's say it's da- dancing with heresy. Okay? I can't go uh, 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 with a good mind go to say someone, you go do that. Let me clap, cheer you on so I could stay here safely, not disobeying Allah, but you go disobey Allah for the sake of us. Mm-hmm. Okay? And lose your deen and lose your barakah and your wealth is haram and all that. But rather, what I could do is say we need influence. You don't need Muslims in politics. How many Jewish senators are there? I don't know. Ten? Less, I think. Less? Mm. I think less. I think that's a bad right. example, though, because Jewish people are 2% of the population, but they're very overrepresented in legislature. But Okay, fine. Yeah. But but I think that their influence mm. outsizes the number of senators they have. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that. Yeah. How many presidents have been Jews? None. None. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're infl- how many vice presidents have been Jews? None. None. Bernie Sanders will be our first. In <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's probably outcasted by his own people. Right? Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, the point is, it's not Muslims. It's influence. Mm-hmm. And it's intelligent influence. We don't have intelligent influence. Mm-hmm. I'm like looking around and they say they're uh, applauding every time there's a new Muslim senator. Do we even have anything close to a unified vision? In order to have a unified vision, you have to have a unified block. We don't even have that. Mm-hmm. We don't have a unified block, mm-hmm. much less a unified vision, right? So you have Muslims running countries. Look how that's benefiting them, right? Yeah. Forget a couple of Muslims in, in a non-Muslim country, right? How you think that's going to benefit you when you have 50, 60 examples of all Muslim parliaments or 99% Muslim parliaments and the country stinks, right? Mm-hmm. So... What we really need is a lot harder than just getting a, a guy with a beard elected, okay, or a woman with a hijab elected. Okay? You need people who understand how to navigate the liberal political order. No, I, what I would do is if you had a unified block, and that unified block had a unified vision, then you use your funds to just get other politicians to do the work for you. Uh-huh. Because I'm not responsible for him, right? If he what what the other things he does. I need you to get me this bill passed. I need you to get this language out of there. I need you to get this language in there, right? And what you, what else you do is not my problem, right? So I need, you know, Frank, you know, Giuseppelli or or Tony Paladino or, or John Smith to go and do my bidding for me, right? You do the bidding for me because he's not obligated with what I'm obligated for. Mm-hmm. And I and I and it's, you're going to get your hands way too dirty. Influence is far more important than getting a Muslim in there. Than being the person in that position. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Now look at Ilhan. Mm-hmm. It's become a joke. Uh-huh. Like, okay, she had her hero moment with Palestine. Since then, it's scandals, affairs, it's dancing with the LGBT pride parade. 
It's then going and and uh, sleeping around with the manager and getting a divorce. What uh, the heck is this? Is you want that for your daughter? Uh, well, none of that stuff was proven. Those are like right wing headlines. Did she deny it? I think she denied it. She didn't deny it. She didn't deny having affairs. I don't know. Her husband came out with it. She's living with the guy. For, oh wow! Look, okay. there's no smoke <laughs> without fire, right? Like it's lasting this long, mm-hmm. getting divorced, dancing with the pride parade. Like, why? What legislation is she getting through that's really worth losing your akhira for? Is she saving our lives? Uh-huh. Right? Because that would justify everything. Except um, utter, even uttering kufr. She's mm-hmm. not doing it. What legislation concretely is she moving in or is happening to justify this nonsense? Mm-hmm. Right? That a Muslim would go through all that and fall that far away from the deen. Okay? Uh, for the sake of it. So, to me, it's not worth it. It doesn't justify it. Right? Not, not, not in deen, not in benefit and harm. But what we need, though, is if we would be far better off if a community would to get themselves together. We can't even get ourselves together. Mm-hmm. Have a vision of three bullet points. This is what we want. Practical. Okay? Oh. Uh, you, first you have a vision statement, then you have a mission. The vision is where do we want to be? What do we want to do? The mission is, the vision is like where do we want to be in 50 years? The mission is where what are we going to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, what is our first step? Three bullet points. All right. We got a voting block. Have we shown that we have a voting block? No. Uh-huh. All right. But we should. Right. Next priority. We've shown that we could swing an election. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to Frank. Let's talk to Vanessa. Let's talk to uh, uh, Adviti. Okay. Uh-huh. Or whoever is running. Yeah. And let's see. This is what we want. You have a track record of not supporting us. So you're out. You have a track record of you visited our mosque. Nice. We'll support you. Here's the check. Okay? Uh-huh. Go get us this. I guess That's I, what you yeah. need. I guess I agree with you that we need stronger Muslim political institutions and elected officials without strong support from the community. They just go to other communities. And it's the nature of democracy that you represent the exactly. people who Thank are you. supporting you. Thank you. We are so just superficial. Uh-huh. Okay, we got Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison, he's a Muslim leftist now. That's uh-huh. it. Yeah. He supports gay marriage. He supports every... So what did we gain? He runs a DNC line that even a non-Muslim would run that yes. line. Yes. What, 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 what have uh-huh. we gained in reality? So Except we, yeah. eye candy and points and to say we have a Muslim thing. All we get is representation. What representation? Yeah. Like identity representation. You get a Muslim face, but nothing beyond That's that. That's it. We, uh-huh. we, I don't care about a, a, mu- a Muslim identity representation. Uh-huh. Like, firstly, there's no such thing as that. There is Islam, right? Uh-huh. Secondly... What I care about is, does the vision of Islam, of, of, of an Islamic vision, is it even coming close to having any implementation? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean Islamic vision like take over the country. I'm saying, it, what, what is, do we even have a, a clear, crisp statement of what is our job here? Because uh-huh. I can tell you what our job should be. Uh-huh. And what our job should be is, number one, ensure your safety. Okay? Mm-hmm. Ensure your security. Number two, dawah. Mm-hmm. That's one and one and two. Ensure that you're gonna be safe here, okay? Number t- as much as humanly possible, because that's a fart. Number two is the dawa. Mm-hmm. I would and, say, yeah. and I guarantee you, ask any of these politicians. Where's dawa on your list? Dawa to Allah's messenger. Uh huh. 
he says, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't even know who you are. Goodbye. Uh-huh. Right? He's not even going to talk to you. Yeah. Go ask Ilhan Omar, how about let's call people to Alana's messenger, right? Because uh-huh. we got Islam has a system that could set your, your, your mind right, your heart right, your family right, your economics right. She's to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't even know who you are. Which Ilhan are you talking about? She's gone. <laughs> the last thing they will ever, ever say is that they actually support the, 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 the establishment of belief in the Allah as messenger mm-hmm. and living by the Sharia. I'm not saying establishing it as rulers, mm-hmm. living it, living it in your own self and your home and your community, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't share our vision. They just become Muslims who are le- liberals oh. with a Muslim name. Yeah. And to me, that is worth not zero, negative. It's a loss. Because now you've muddied the water for future generations coming mm-hmm. up. I would say South African Muslims, they did a much better job at this. Yeah. Where they had people who are Muslims, who are in, who engage politics with an Islamic ethos. And a lot of them were ulama. And they would run on the ANC ticket and they would get elected. And I, I noticed that because of them, a lot of Muslims are respected in South Africa. Because of the role that they played in the struggle, and because of sort of the morality and uh, like exemplary ethics that these politicians show. Mm-hmm. So one example is Ibrahim Rasul, who's a former South African ambassador to the United States. And after apartheid, he was the go- the governor, you could say, of the biggest province in South Africa. And he spent you know ten years in jail under apartheid. And he talks about how his routine in jail was he would get up in the morning and he would recite a juz of Qur'an. And then he would look at that juz of Qur'an and he would analyze it and do all these things. And he would basically spend his whole time in jail with the Qur'an. And then he would talk about how it was with it was engaging with the Book of Allah that he was able to survive in jail and how he was able to learn about himself and all of these sorts of things. And I think if you have... what What I want to see is I want to see... Politicians who are serious Muslims, who have a concrete understanding of their deen, who are able to relay these ideas of the deen to the broader public, but also people who are just committed to getting people in Flint water, who are committed to not having the United States, you know, bomb like Yemen and Palestine and Somalia and Pakistan and all of these sorts of things. So I guess it's, it's a very idealistic vision. I mean, it's it, when, when the rubber hits the road, politics actually happens in quick moments uh-huh. your career is done and my one of my friends uh he said he's gonna he, he's thinking of going into politics to be a, a congressman right uh-huh. so i said all right um i'm a reporter real quick um it's pride month your son is with you why isn't he wearing a pride flag uh-huh. it's over you hesitated that's it i don't think it, uh, it's <laughs> over it, it is over i don't right? think it's that yes it strict. is for, it's it's so it, that's how simple it is with with the cancel culture out there, with the with the everyone watching, right? If you don't have, if you don't jump on certain things real fast, you are done in the Democratic Party. You go to um, uh, uh, the Republican Party, okay? If you're not jumping up and down for Israel, you are done. I mean, uh-huh. one hesitation and you're done. Yeah, I'm telling you. Not only is it the right word, no. If you hesitate, you're finished. And mm-hmm. if that clip goes around. Game's over. That's how simple. It, that's how quick and simple. And that's the reality of it, uh-huh. right? The theory, you can work out a lot of things in theory until some journalist comes in with a trick question like this: like, why isn't your son wearing a pride flag, but right? a pride pin? Mm-hmm. They, it's like if you stumble on that, 
you're done. But there are also plenty of Catholics who are Democrats who their theology says the same thing that we do about LGBTQ issues, and they're not done. I don't think it's that. Uh, I don't think it's that strict. I for think Muslims there's. It is. For, I think there's Muslim, more room for nuance. For Muslims, it is. Uh-huh. It, it, no, it's not that. It might not be that strict in theory. Uh huh. But in practice, image is everything. Mm-hmm. Also, there's like two of us right now, so they really beat up on us. Quick answers is everything, though. Yeah. Right. Quick answers is everything. Okay. So, oh, you have you've been to a uh, you've been to this mosque? Yeah. So and so was there. Let's pull up a clip of that guy. Do you denounce him? Oh. Uh-huh. Right. So I told him, look. Uh, um, so you live in North Brunswick. Uh, have you ever been to Dr. Shadi Amashi's mosque? He's like, I never heard of him. <laughs> never heard like, of that dude. I was, like, yeah. I was like, yeah, you got that question. Right. <laughs> because if you answer that one wrong, you're done. You're definitely done. Right? So, but the point is that the reality of getting elected, the reality of getting elected is a lot much more gut uh, instinct, quick moments. Theory is one thing, but the reality of getting ground support is totally different and it's a lot more simplistic and it's all about instincts and immediate responses and that's why a guy like trump who has zero theory mm-hmm. gets himself elected because he knows how to play the 60 second game yeah he's charismatic he's yeah he's got the five second uh, zinger he's got the immediate answer he never hesitates uh-huh. okay go on rachel maddow and hesitate on that you're finished uh-huh. okay uh if she senses anything like that and she trashes you you've lost uh, a significant portion so that's why when I say when the rubber hits the road, it's a total different game than theorizing. When the rubber hits the road, you're either cheerleading for the LGBT or you're cheerleading for Israel. Pick one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I would say I wouldn't no Muslim can pick one, so I wouldn't want a Muslim to do that. This is the wrong approach. The right approach is what is our vision for the country? And when I say I should add to my vision, I just came up with that real quick, but our vision is it's Dawah as the number one means of helping people because our vision we have other things too like we don't want to see people hungry mm-hmm. muslim or otherwise yeah we don't want to see people uh kids okay going without food we don't want to see kids yeah. being beaten we don't want to see animals being killed we have a lot of things mm-hmm. but i would say the biggest two things would be that we have to uh, all of those things would merely be as a form of reflecting the truth of the prophet that this is what the prophet will want because we are the the, the dawah is not in handing out pamphlets. Uh-huh. It's in our actions. The dawah is in our actions mm-hmm. and in our compassion. That's the dawah. That intoxicants is a huge problem in the society. So you're a Democrat guy and you have to hang out with you. You got to be supporting weed legalization uh-huh. and drug legalization. And there was one of them, I think recently I saw, even supports that bestiality now. Really? Yeah, he said that if the animal's not, you know, moaning and grunting, maybe he's being pleasured. <laughs> so you should it's be so that's where they're going. We should be promoting everything family related, uh, sobriety, right? Because that's what's good for people. Uh-huh. Okay, a revelation knows what's good for people. But c- could you say like, would I be sinful? Let's say hypothetically, I'm a politician and I say I support the legalization of marijuana because it helps rid problems of mass incarceration that disproportionately target black communities. But I think not doing drugs is not a legal issue, but it's a spiritual issue. No, it, no? I mean it's more of an issue that you should say that the it should be a ticket. Uh huh. It should be decriminalized. It should be a ticket. Uh-huh. Right? Why do you need to go to jail for that? It should be a ticket, right? If it's being misapplied, 
but uh, I, I know the Maliki school is very severe against intoxicants, all intoxicants, right? But in that issue, you would say, you know, it's uh, something that I think is bad for human beings. Mm-hmm. But if it's misapplied, make it make it a ticket, mm-hmm. like a traffic ticket, right? So there's discretion on how to penalize certain haram things mm-hmm. in the Sharia. But is penalizing those things mandatory if you're living? Uh, not from an ideological perspective, but from a practical perspective. If it's if it's causing harm, yeah. Uh huh. If it's causing harm, mm-hmm. right? You ha- you should. If it's causing harm, mm-hmm. right? And if it's haram, you wouldn't be in support of its sale, uh-huh. right? You can't be in support of the sale of a forbidden thing. You might not, as the hakim, go prosecute every single instance of it. If you you know if it's if it's out of line, but you definitely can't on the books go and reverse the ruling. That you can't sell it to now you can sell it. So mm-hmm. let's say you're the prince and you were all of a sudden take over. Your dad was just a corrupt guy and he had permitted the sale of drugs, uh-huh. marijuana, heroin, whatever. He permitted it all. Now you come in office. These gangsters are strong. You mm-hmm. can't, you as leader, you cannot take them head on. You can't. They would do too much damage to society if you took them head on. Mm-hmm. You're not obligated at that point, you're obligated now to use your discretion and find a way to slow down their growth, to, you know, slow weaken them. You're not obligated now to determine if they're going to wage war against you and cause immense damage if you were to Ill- illegalize or delegalize their uh, or prohibit their industry. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to be pragmatic on that by Sharia. So I, the principle is you don't have to affirm everything that's true. But you can't negate what's wrong. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh-huh. you, and you don't have to say all the truth all the time, but you can't go and take a forbidden thing and say, yeah, let's make this halal. Uh-huh. That you can't do, definitely can't do. But if the forbidden thing is already allowed, you don't have to make it forbidden. You No. You have discretion in you that have sense. Discretion. Uh-huh. You, uh, you have discretion. You have discretion, right? Uh-huh. Like Sayyidina Ali. I, he knows that the killers of Uthman are in his camp. Mm-hmm. Okay, He knows them. He knows they're guilty. He doesn't hold that it was halal what they did. Mm-hmm. But he used discretion to say, I won't prosecute them right now. Uh-huh. Right? I'm going to prosecute them later. Why? Discretion of benefit and harm. Uh-huh. Right? So the attempt of many to use these examples to say, let's now go become liberal leftists because this is what's going to save us. I have a big problem with that in terms of control. We are when we take that philosophy, we're not in control. Mm-hmm. We're giving more control to them. Mm-hmm. I want a political vision where I might be still weaker at this moment, but I want to be in control of my vision. And you, that's one thing they uh-huh. have zero uh-huh. control of their vision. Yeah. And that's why I said I would not want Iblis to save me because at that point I'm not in control of this relationship between me and him. I'm indebted to him, mm-hmm. right? I want to be in control of this relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. And my control being that I have nothing to do with you. I don't owe you anything. And when it comes to the left and the right, we're not in control by playing and asking for their and, 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 and playing uh, into one of their two games. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Nelson Mandela. They used to build coalitions with the communists yeah. to fight apartheid. And uh, people would say to him, the communists are using you. And he said, people say we're using the communists, but how do they know that we're... That People say that the communists are using us, but how do they know that we're not using the communists? So he's saying basically we're going to take their hand and then stab them in the back? 
Basically, yeah. <laughs> or we're going to take their hand and then we're going to have enough power that we don't need them anymore. Well, what kind of person do you become at that point if that's uh-huh. your politics? Yeah. I have a problem with that from an ethical perspective, from a from a heart perspective. Like what kind of human being will I be uh-huh. if that's my mode of operation? Uh-huh. Then what am how different am I than the people that I criticize uh, that are like fifth columns in every society. They suck the blood of, out of every society, uh-huh. right? And then leave it to dry, uh, to die. All right. So I have, I have, I would just feel sort of uncomfortable. So the, the, the idea of betraying a kafir, mm-hmm. no, you can, you can use trickery in war. The Prophet said, mm-hmm. said, right? In war. But what is war? Mm-hmm. War is declared offensives. Well, I guess I wouldn't consider it trickery, but it's like... It's you're, betrayal. You're building coalitions with yeah. people that you don't agree with on everything. Uh, so as soon as you don't need them, you stab the LGBT, the gays in the back. No, you don't stab them in the back. You kind of let them be. But um, it's an understanding that in a pluralistic society that you can enforce all of your values on other people, but you can establish a better society, a more just society. Well, but Nelson Mandela's case, um, it, it, to me, it bugs me. Uh-huh. Right, it doesn't seem like the ways of prophets. Think about it. Prophets are straight. They uh-huh. are straight, right? Shooters. And the Prophet said, Al Khuda, war. But war is also declared. You can't be at war when you want and you're at peace when you want. Uh-huh. You can't say, Well, we're at an ideological war. No, that's not what the Prophet said. Yeah. It, it war Khuda war is trickery means that successful war uh, generals they mislead their opponents in the war right not after they sign a treaty and say oh war was trickery and cut your head off right after the treaty no uh-huh. once you sign our we're in a treaty right now we're in a peace treaty yeah we social contract we're in a social contract uh-huh. i don't want to be one of these people who uses then abuses right or uh-huh. uses a, 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 a something and then is completely selfish about it this is not our way Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, you produce snakiness in people. They become snakes. They become cheats. They become slimy. They become grimy, right? Uh-huh. So I want to be totally upfront. My philosophy is I'm going to be totally upfront because I'm not afraid of anything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be totally upfront. I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. I have my interests, right? I'm not trying. I'm not. I don't want to harm the society. I totally don't want to harm. It, but I have my beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to shake those. And I'm going to use the legitimate means to strengthen myself, right? I'm gonna. We're gonna pool our wealth together. We got to pool our wealth together. We got to be strong financially. We should own property. We should be investing in things, right? And then use that wealth to bring this congressman in, right? Mm-hmm. Let's have a meeting. What do you need for your campaign? This is what we need. It's an even trade. Whatever uh-huh. else you do, not my problem as long as it doesn't contradict these three points that I want from you, uh-huh. right? In this term. He goes, his term is up. You come back. You delivered one out of the three. Come on, right? Uh-huh. Okay, we'll give them another chance. You came back, you delivered two. We're getting somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. You delivered zero. All right, let's go to your competition now. I don't care if he's blue or red. If he uh-huh. gives me these three points. And by the way, our philosophy should not be to want neither the, the Democrats or the liberals to have a one thing. What we, the, the, We're safest when they're oscillating. When they're going back and forth. When they're going back and uh-huh. forth. That's what, You don't want a one-party system rule anywhere. Because uh-huh. right? it guarantees stability also. Yeah, uh-huh. and it guarantees that Okay, for this eight years, we're going to have to deal with this problem. For this eight years, we're going to have to deal with this problem. It's better off than having one hammering you constantly. Like Ghazali said, or Chinese water torture, right? Is that uh, if you drop one drop of water on one nerve on the head, on the forehead, 
eventually starts to feel like a hammer uh-huh. and, it, and it drives people mad, right? Uh-huh. So you don't want to deal with a one-party rule. Uh-huh. You want them to oscillate back and forth, right? And uh, Because Ali said you drop one drop on a rock. Yeah, that's what Ghazali yeah. said. And, that, and it breaks the rock, right? Uh-huh. That's what the system of Aurad is, he said. Uh-huh. So that's my idea. And I'm telling you, this is far harder, but yet more effective because we're in control. But I'll tell you why we, will, we, we can't, we, we, we should be optimistic, but our problem is we don't have a unified block. Mm-hmm. And the way that I would start is I would not try to go and unify the whole American Muslim community. Just unify your own locality. Yeah. You start with NDIC, then Central Jersey. Exactly. Start, yeah. st- prove it at the local level uh-huh. that you have a vision for your local society, that you can communicate to the running politicians who are running for office, uh, and you can, through the vision, you can pull your funds together, and you could put a man in office or a, or, or a woman in office uh, who, at this point, a transhuman in office, right? Because we, uh-huh. we don't care at that point. But you can get me bullet points one, two, and three, right? I uh-huh. want this. And it should not be selfish only. Mm-hmm. We're not selfish people, right? Uh-huh. We're not selfish people. It should not just be, uh, I need a masjid zoning here. Uh-huh. I need a Muslim school there. Mm-hmm. We're not that. That's not what the prophet was. It's like we need to get rid of poverty. We, we, need, need, to, to, we yeah. need to deal with this one block we need to deal with this one issue, this one situation, right? Very mm-hmm. specific, like very specific, uh-huh. right? We need to not allow for some kind of exotic club here because we don't believe in that, right? We, mm-hmm. we wouldn't want that. We would not want, you know, uh, so it's going to be a combination of things, something for our benefit and something for the broader community's benefit. Mm-hmm. And if we don't care for the broader community, we're not even reflecting the prophet's message, mm-hmm. right? But we're going to care for it by what we, what the, what revelation said is good and bad. Yeah. So when I said dawah earlier, dawah uh-huh. to me is not pamphleteering. That's uh-huh. really like Protestant missionaries. Uh-huh. That's not for us. Dawah to me is show that you're an upright community, uh-huh. the whole community. Uh-huh. That intoxication is down. Divorce is down. Family life is good, uh-huh. right? Suicide is down. That you're a force that uplifts others. Uh-huh. That you're a force that feeds others, right? That you're a force that tutors kids. That you're a force in these, uh, uh, you know, the extracurricular programs that are keeping people busy and out of trouble, right? Uh-huh. Show that to the world. Yeah. It'll take you 30 years. Uh-huh. But prove it first. Going back to uh, Imam Jamil Al-Amin, this was his thing. Yeah, he it's was doing like, it right. Yeah, it's and like we have proof for why we can create. This deen transforms people. Yeah, and he says, "I can show you. Join, come to the masjid. I'll transform exactly. you." Brooklyn, uh, Imam Siraj's uh, community was really a, a, a horrific place. Mm. They cleaned it up, right? Uh huh. They cleaned it up so much, it's actually getting gentrified, right? Yeah, same with Imam Jamil's community. Yeah, West End's getting gentrified the, now. The Muslims go in there, they did the hard work, right? Uh-huh. And the funny thing is that it happened in New Haven too, but the second generation are actually losing it, believe uh-huh. it or not. The first generation were the gangsters who converted. A gangster knows how to talk to another gangster. Uh-huh. They cleaned up shop. Well, the gangster produces like a young Muslim boy. <laughs> and that young, pure Muslim boy doesn't know how to deal with another gangster. Uh-huh. So that's a problem. Uh-huh. I remember one time sitting in the masjid in New Haven and there was a brother who got beaten up. All right? A, bro- uh, a, a, a Somali brother got a, a brick in his face. Old man then got all his money stolen from his pockets. Right in front of the masjid. 
So they called, and the youth were involved, right? And the youth, who are born Muslims now, their dads are the gangsters, right? Born Muslims. And they're like, I think we need to set up a community block watch, right? And the dad is just shaking his head. <laughs> He's shaking his head, right? He knows what needs to happen to fix the situation. And I had a long drive with him. I was with a whole group. We went up to Boston to see to, to a program. On our way back down, he was in the passenger seat and I was driving and everyone else fell asleep in the minivan. And I was like, talk to me because I'm falling asleep. I was like, tell me how you, you cleaned up the community, all that stuff. He's like, oh, you, I, uh, the, the rule of thumb is don't ask. Uh-huh. Right? The rule of thumb <laughs> is don't ask, right? And I was like, I know what that means. Uh-huh. Well, I know what don't ask means. So he's like, well, since we got a long way, I'll just tell you, right? And he, he was a bit tired, so he was off his, his um, filter was off. He said we would sit up top, all right, uh, of the masjid, the second floor, and we had our rifles. Uh-huh. Right, and then he said things got cleaned up real fast, uh-huh. and the cops knew what we were doing, and had no problem with it. Uh-huh. Right, they they let us do it because mm-hmm. they couldn't do it. They said we know you can do it. It'll make our life easier, right? So like wink, wink. They knew what they were doing. They didn't do anything about it. Yeah, and <laughs> and they they took care of business that way. Right. I, I asked someone who grew up in West End about this. Yeah, because he said if a woman's husband was beating her. Yeah. And it's a non-Muslim couple. Uh-huh. They would come to the masjid board to uh, get the issue resolved. So I asked him, I said, how would you guys resolve it? And he said, do you really want to know? Yeah. And I said, yeah, I really want to know. And he says, uh, w- the masjid board, it would be like five guys. We would go to the husband of who's beating his wife. And we would say to him, you know, you seem to like uh, beating up people. So uh, we're going to beat you up right now. Yeah. And he said after the husband would get beat up, he would know not to hit his wife again. Exactly what happened. And they said that we would go knock on his door. We would talk once. Uh-huh. Uh, a second complaint. Come, let's have a talk in the masjid. Mm-hmm. After I shot, when everyone's gone in the basement of the masjid, and the, f- the funny way that he he put it, he's like, we would lay the hadood on his. <laughs> <laughs> I also I asked Imam Jamil Amin's son about this. I forgot what I was asking him about, but I was like, um, the, oh, there were uh, bullets in his car from the shootout with the police and the other person. And I said, do you think drug dealers could have been shooting at the car? And he said, no, drug dealers would never shoot my at my dad's car. They respect my dad. Wow. He said, they're scared of him. They know that if you were to ever harm anyone in the community, that uh-huh. bad things would happen to you. And uh, uh, we're not endorsing this because we can't, but that's the language of that area. Mm-hmm. You cannot go and, and give a speech to some people. Mm-hmm. And and people like that know how to deal with their, you know that background. If you're from uh, a certain background, you know how to deal with them. Okay, and that's how they dealt with things. But what do you think of this? What I'm saying about this political vision or this mm-hmm. this uh, approach to politics. To me, this is the only approach. I agree that it's more important to build strong institutions, and I think though. The way Muslims need to act isn't necessarily on the congressional and Senate level, but you need people on the school board. You need people on the city council. It's going to start at the local level, right? Uh But more important than having people out there is the unified block with the unified vision, with the unified fund. Mm -hmm. It's not just, it's the unified vision. Okay, we all agree. Well, let's put our money where our mouth is, right? We all agree that means let's pull our money into this fund and this endowment. And this endowment will buy us the next point, which is we have every term, there's got to be some points of uh, 
of action that are practical, that can be done, that can prove that this little pattern can work, mm -hmm. right? That we have a vision, we have money, we're going to give it to a politician, he's going to do X, Y, and Z. Let's prove it at a mm -hmm. very basic level. Mm -hmm. And in Australia, there's a, an area there called Lakemba, where uh, a man by the name of Samir Danda, he did it, right? There was a graveyard problem with the Muslims. I think they didn't have enough room for, for, for a Muslim graveyard. They kept getting denied or something like that. It was something so practical, right? And he went around and he gathered money and he came talking and we're going to put together this. We're going to put in, uh, he talked to the politicians, right? And he said, we're going to put you in office if you give us this, right? And I think he said no or something like that. So he said, well, all right then. This has been a, I think, like a, a, a certain whatever the party was for 17 years has had this seat. We're going to flip it because mm -hmm. we have the ability. We have the numbers. And he went and he, on his feet, with his tongue, with his mouth, rallied the Muslims to vote for that other dude that would give them the, with a graveyard. Mm -hmm. Right. And they did it. And they flipped the seat. Mm -hmm. They proved to themselves and to everyone else they can flip a seat. Mm -hmm. Right. That they could actually be a swing vote. This is what Samuel Arion did also in the 2000 election. He pushed George Bush. He said to George Bush, you'll have the, the Muslim vote if you get rid of this secret clause and like a civil liberties sort of issue. And his thing was Muslims need to vote on civil liberties issues. So he got the Florida Muslim community to support George Bush. And in 2000, George Bush wins the election because of Muslims. Yeah. So I actually think that at the, nas at the federal level, at the national level, at this point, it's, it's too premature. We're screwed either way. But we haven't even proved mm. it at the local level. Yeah. Like we haven't even proved it at the state level. We need Muslims on the school board. So, yeah. Prove prove that you your community has any political weight at the local level. That mm -hmm. the, right? The local level. At the township level. Then if you do that and the next township does that and the next township, then it's county level. Then at the mm -hmm. next county and the next county, then it's state level. Mm -hmm. Prove it to me on the most practical, simple level first. Mm -hmm. And prove to me that... The fuqara, because we believe that victory from Allah, protection from Allah, comes from the fuqara, uh -huh. right? Prove to me that the poor even know about Muslims. Uh -huh. Prove to me both, right? The political side is one thing. Prove to me that the poor of any, the needy, the uh, true masakin at any level mm -hmm. know about Muslims and have something positive to say about what Muslims have their attitude towards them, like, oh yeah, the Muslims they come around. Uh -huh. you know, they're they're there when we need them, right? Or they're they're well, they're always trying, right? Uh -huh. Show me that. Give me a testimony. Give me ten testimonials from any town mm -hmm. that that's the case. Because if that's not the case, it's all talk and it's all nonsense. And I think very negatively of the Islamic groups that exist in towns, and it's a lot of nice clothes. Mm -hmm. You got the clothes down, that's for sure, uh -huh. right? But zero benefit of the fuqara. Mm -hmm. Zero benefit because they're kuffar. Uh -huh. Right? That's not the message of the Rasulullah. Uh -huh. That's not the Prophet. Guarantee you a thousand percent. So regardless of political engagement or not, you have to be serving the marginalized in your community. And they have to recognize that. They have to see the actions of Islam. They have to see that because that's a true representation of how the Prophet wants us to live. Uh -huh. I guarantee you the Prophet the way that he wants us to live is he wants us caring. Mm -hmm. He's the Rasul of compassion, mm -hmm. right? The Prophet ﷺ wants us living in such a way that uh, that the, the fuqara have something good to say. Uh -huh. Not because we want anything from them. We don't want anything from them. We're not using them as a political ploy. Uh -huh. 
We're not using them. We're helping them because it's our religious duty. Because we're, it's fought upon us. And yeah. Allah's watching. Uh-huh. Right? So that's what we want. Uh-huh. And we don't want to be a type of people that uh, are, are, are just trying to gain publicity points. Uh-huh. No, that's not what it is at all. Yeah. Right? But that's on one front. Mm-hmm. On the other front, the political front, uh, what, I, what I mentioned before, that's, that's, what, that's how we got to go. Mm-hmm. And it's got to start at the local levels. Prove it. Uh-huh. Bef- uh, prove it with two people before you try to do it with 10. Yeah. Prove it with 10 before I try to do it with 20. Uh-huh. Prove it with 20 before you try to do it with 50. But, but because once that ball gets rolling, it won't stop after that. You run the table after that. Once, once the precedent actually occurs, you run the table. But you, you can only focus on what you can do. These big visions and these big, uh, like AM, what is it? Not AMP. Like uh, these big impact. Impact, yeah. Like, we don't know who you are. Uh-huh. You haven't touched our. You don't speak for us. Yeah. We don't even. You don't speak to us because you can't. I don't even know who you are. Uh-huh. So they went. They tried to go national. They tried to go to the Super Bowl. They didn't even win the division. Uh-huh. Right. You, you're not playing in the division. Yeah. You're not even playing locally. You're trying to go nationally. Who are you? We don't even know who you are. And there's a lot more opportunity for local engagement in a place like Central New Jersey. Yeah. Where the United States is what one two percent Muslim. But central New Jersey, the numbers are much higher. It's much higher, yeah. Probably like 10, 20% Muslim. Yeah. So if one in 10 people in an area are Muslim, you have really good opportunity to influence the other nine in 10 people. Oh, the, the local politicians are so nice to us. They're uh-huh. so good to us, uh-huh. right? They um, truly know that oh, we can vote, mm-hmm. right? We can use that clout. And, yeah. and, and we're not trying to squeeze anyone either. Mm-hmm. We're not extortionists, right? Yeah. It's a transaction, though. It is a transaction. I'm not denying that. It's. A, I'm not going to be naive and say we all love each other. No, it's a transaction. And at the end of the day, they work for us. Yeah, it's a transaction, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh, you give me this, and we'll pay, we'll pay for that. Mm-hmm. That's it. Simple as that. It's a yeah. transaction. That's how my politics is. So to put a Muslim up there, to me, in the local is fine. But once you start getting to other levels where hot button issues come up, huh. uh, to me, it's just... Uh, it's a distraction. It's it's just something that's you're gonna have to make judgment calls that are too risky, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You're gonna become a secularist, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. You're gonna become a secularist. There's also the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says the hearts turn to those who do good for them. That's true. That's why the Prophet said mm-hmm. didn't want certain people doing good for him. Uh-huh. And I don't want the liberals doing good for me. Uh-huh. If I if I want something from you, I'll pay for it. Right? Uh-huh. It's a transaction. Uh-huh. I'll pay you, okay? Do it for me, but I don't want you doing me a favor. I don't want the liberals coming doing me a favor and say, hey, we got you this, we got you that, because next thing tomorrow, I'm going to owe them a favor back. Uh-huh. And this system of favors, I don't like, uh-huh. because it's not crisp. There, I want transactions, yeah. right? There was a Pan-Africanist leader. He refused aid from Western governments. Yeah. And they asked him why. They said, your country needs food. Your country needs these things. And he said, he who feeds you owns you. Exactly. Who was that? La- Thomas oh, okay. Sankara. Because there was the one in Congo. Uh-huh. Who ended up they ended up killing him? I think right. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, but he was a hero in Congo. But but you get my idea. Yeah, we cannot be having people this system of favors, and you're we're we're helping you. No no no, you're not helping me. Everything is calculated. Everything is calculated. And as as transactional as I can make this, it allows me to walk away. If I make a transaction, if I buy buy a car from you, right, and I see you two months later, I don't owe you nothing, and you don't owe me nothing. Uh-huh. Right. That was a transaction. Okay. That's it. So that's, that's where I, our, I would want our politics to be. But in order to do that, you need to have a unified fund. And in order to have a unified fund, you need to have a unified vision. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And that's we. I don't even think we have that. Mm-hmm. So and it all goes down to people being grounded in community. Yeah, and and I, and being because we don't have a unified national vision, or fund, or whatever. So I'm not even going to go there. Uh-huh. But I will go to local stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll support that mm-hmm. to show that where is our unified local vision, right? And is it a descriptive vision or is it merely? Oh, he's a great guy. We took a picture at the masjid. He visits our mosque, uh-huh. right? And he's okay with us being zoned and existing. That's not a vision, yeah. right? That's not a vision, right? <laughs> remember, remember when Cory Booker came to NBIC? Yeah, that, that's not a what. It's like what is what he? Okay, he comes to NBIC. All right, well, one of the guys stood up and said, "You got our vote for president." What the heck? <laughs> right? What has he done for you? Right? Like, yeah. where is the plan? Where is the vision? Where is the the ask? Uh-huh. You're giving. Uh-huh. You're basically giving him when you didn't even ask anything. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's like just because he respected the fact that you exist and have the right to exist, we're going to support him. To me, it's a disaster. Do, do you remember I asked him about his Islamophobic donor? Yeah. And uh, he pretended not to know who he is. He's like, uh, yeah, I don't know all my donors' names. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these these people, we are such pushovers. It's beyond ridiculous. So, but all we can do is you can't look at the big picture. Mm-hmm. You cannot. You can only look at what is, what action you can take. So, everyone out there who's listening, don't think, all right, let's do something for the national. No, don't. Start just do, at the local level. Yeah, do something for your local level. Yeah. Like, start in your immediate. Mm-hmm. Take the steps that you can take. If you look at how things are done, things are done not by pursuing, it's by imagining, number one, but not by pursuing the end goal. It's pursuing mm-hmm. what you can do. A step at a time. Right now, what can you do? Right? Yeah. And any everything else is a moot point. Everything uh-huh. else is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So once your imagination, your vision is in place, you know that. But that's where we're going to get in in, in, a, in a 50 years. But right now, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. All the talk about national stuff is useless if you haven't even proven it at the local level. Mm-hmm. Like this is why I always tell my kids, if you, want, if you have kids and you're listening out there, if you want to do something, you want to train competent kids, is the theory, the idea, the dictum that you cannot achieve big things if you can't even achieve little things. Like, is your room clean? Do, uh-huh. you, know, do you have a system of how to clean your room? How do you keep it clean, right? Uh-huh. How, do you, how do you make a bed, right? Uh-huh. How do you vacuum a floor? How do, you, how do you organize a bookshelf? Like, how do you organize a closet? How do you organize drawers? Uh-huh. If that little creature of yours, okay, is in his little, whatever, 12 by 12 box room, and he has no clue and no sense of priority of keeping that room tidy, organized, and systematic. Like you cannot wake up at Tuesday morning, Monday morning, and tell me, I don't have socks. Like mm-hmm. where were you Sunday night? All mm-hmm. day Sunday, right? Like you cannot come and say, Mom, my school uniform is dirty. But So there's no sense of any responsibility in this very little cube with has like 50 items in it, and mm-hmm. your job as a preteen or a teenager, is to take care of 50 items. If you can't do that, why should I trust you to go off to college and, 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 and use my money, $20,000 to go to school, uh-huh. right? So you haven't proved, if you have not proven these little things, why should I trust you with the big things? Uh-huh. It goes back to the verse. God doesn't change the condition of people yeah. till they change within themselves. And if you've changed yourself, prove it, uh-huh. right? With the little things. Uh-huh. So, so competence is little things that slowly become big things. Uh-huh. And MPAC and all these types of organizations that want to go at the national level when I don't even know who you are mm-hmm. in my local level, right? So that's useless. Go 
do the simple thing first, but prove your competence. Prove that you've taken something objective, okay? One objective problem and you've solved it. Prove that. And then go on to the next one and the next one, the next one. So Alhamdulillah, we covered a lot of things here. Any last things that you want to bring up? I guess my question would be then, what's, what would you say is the socio-political objective of the average Muslim? Let's say a Muslim living in central New Jersey, there is a strong Muslim community, strong masajid. What's the first socio-political step we should take that's helpful to the community around us? Um, I would say that it's more about, it's simpler than that. I mean, that might be a fancy way to say it, uh-huh. but I would say it's habits, right? Habits. We need to inculcate certain habits. And I tr- truly believe that when I said there's two fronts, there's the actual social front and then there's a political front. The social front, every one of us can tackle. Uh-huh. Like every single one of us can physically move our body once a week, once a month even, once every two weeks and help those who are in need. It's as simple as showing up into an, a, a, an impoverished neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, and going into the chicken shack, right? Okay. Maybe you have a halal operation there. Maybe uh-huh. you got to go to the grocery store. Go to the grocery store. And you look at, you can tell who's in need. Mm-hmm. We know who's in need. Yeah. yeah. We're, you know, pick up the tab mm-hmm. once. That's it. It takes you 10 seconds. Go to the line, pick up a candy bar, and pretend you're buying it. Go to the person in front of you or behind you. Say, you know what? I got this today. Mm-hmm. Why? Oh, what is it? No, don't say, because I am Muhammad <laughs> and my prophet told me to do this. No, no. <laughs> Just say, don't worry. I got it. Right. That's it. Let uh-huh. them look at you and deduce what they do. Allah's watching. Uh-huh. Right. Allah's watching. Mm-hmm. Okay. You just go and do that. Don't try to win points. Don't try to win publicity things. Okay. Don't wear a t-shirt that says, I love Allah. Uh-huh. Just to try to make it. All that is a bunch of fakery. Just do it. Okay? Just do it once a week. And don't do it when you're shopping. And by the way, not everyone poor deserves, is just the poor who deserve any help. Mm-hmm. There are a ton of people who are not wearing holes in their shoes, mm-hmm. having holes in their shoes and driving a beat up car that need help. Yeah, their lives are terrible. They might have all the money in the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is a regular courtesy thing, mm-hmm. right? Regular courtesy thing. It, it used to be the, the tolls. You get the toll for the person behind you. Right? Uh-huh. The ethic of sharing, I'm telling you, is just, uh, it's not part of this culture, unfortunately, I'm telling you. And there was a t- I was watching a documentary about a, a military guy who uh, needed some Iraqis to help out, right? I don't know, digging something or fixing something to get water running. This is after the Americans had bombed them out, but then they were rebuilding. So these, this group of Iraqis, who the Americans were a bit suspicious of, because you never know what's going to happen, but they would bring these, they would soldiers would these soldiers would come in, they'd be be patted down, they'd be brought in, and they would work all day with them, helping them get the water back to the town. And these Iraqis, uh, when it was lunch hour, they would pull out the food, and they would open it for everyone to eat. Uh-huh. And the Americans were like, "Oh, it's a trick, it's uh-huh. poisoned, right? Don't eat it." Then the Iraqis like, what is wrong with you people, right? Mm-hmm. And every American's eating from his pouch by himself. Uh-huh. And they actually depicted this in a movie. Uh-huh. That this commentary and uh, this uh, story ended up being depicted in some guy's movie later on about this. He put it in a little scene. And the American soldiers were like, what the hell's going on? Why are they sharing their food? Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> and the Iraqis are like, uh, how else do human beings eat, right? 
And they're like, but that's not, that's your food. And they're like, what does it mean your food? There's no such thing as, it's food, right? We all eat the food, right? Yeah. This ethic, wallahi al-azim, this is what Muslims should bring. Mm-hmm. This is the ethic that Muslims should bring, mm-hmm. right? And I'm telling you, this is uh, uh, our festivities too. There's so much gloominess. Our oh. festivity around Rabi al-Awwal, it should spill out to the society. In England, they do that. Yeah. They have marches where they sing all along the march and they give out food. Mm-hmm. It like puts everyone in a good mood. It brings down the anwar and the barakah of the dhikr of uh, the Salah and the Prophet. And the kids love it. The people love it. Mm-hmm. Food, singing, people. It's yeah. great. In right? South Africa also. Particularly, it's a wonderful thing, yeah. right? So we, like, but what do we bring into the table? Are we bringing any of this? So if you're a local individual guy, go out and, and, and share your money. Share. That's it. Pick uh-huh. up. What, what's the difference once a month if you had four trips to the supermarket or five trips? Mm-hmm. Right? Pick it up, right? All right. Tell the person I'll pick up. Here. Here's 20 bucks. 20 bucks. This is for the tab behind me. Uh-huh. Why? Uh, just because I feel I need to. I feel like I want to do this. That's it. Uh-huh. That's it. it. We need to spread this mm-hmm. as individuals. That's the immediate localized habit that we could have. Do you know the story of Terry Holbrooks? He was a guard at Guantanamo Bay. He wrote a book called Traitor. Yeah. Because he said when he was a guard at Guantanamo Bay, he joined the military at the age of 18. He just wanted to help his country. He didn't really know what to do with his life. He shows up to Guantanamo Bay. All these people are here. On, they're not even charged with a crime yet. They're just there, subjected to all this torture. And he said, I found it so crazy that these people seem so satisfied with their life despite all the injustice done to them. And I was the one, you know, with alcoholism, with Mm -hmm. all of these issues. And he said, I started talking to the prisoners. What is it that you guys have that I don't? Where I'm free, but I feel like I'm in prison. And you're in prison, but you seem so free. Yeah. And 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 another, that's what you brought up earlier. You said that uh, in the hypothetical Marxist heaven, Uh when everything, no one's complaining. Mm -hmm. Nobody is complaining. You still have a million ills. Uh Mental, social, emotional Right, all those ailments, family torn apart. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, you walk around and you see if I see a family with teens, tweens, right, and two parents or whatever, I know like 90% is they're part of a church. Uh huh. Guaranteed. They have not only part of a church, hardcore in the church because mm-hmm. you don't see this anymore. Uh-huh. The families are destroyed. So, we have to be when you do these things, you got to involve the youth, your youth, your kids, okay. You got to involve them. This has to be a family matter because this is also part of our uh, a sh- to be shuhada ala nas to be witnesses unto the people. Is that they say, like, wow, like that girl is not telling off. She's not rolling her eyes at her dad. Uh-huh. She loves her dad, right? And that boy, like, isn't weirded out because he's with his dad. Uh-huh. Like they actually like their dad. Uh-huh. Like this is something that's a huge achievement these days, uh-huh. right? And in the, all the movies, they want to show you, you know, the. T- 16 year old girl rolling her eyes at her dad mm-hmm. right talking back at her mom okay uh and you want to show you want to do dawah prove that you're actually your tween and teen kids actually love you and like you uh-huh. prove it that this is a good means of structuring a society i mean this is this is you want to guide people to heaven you don't even know how to guide people to family life uh-huh right <laughs> think about that like you want to go pamphleteering and missionary dawah <laughs> Show me, have you given dawah to your 15-year-old kid? Does he believe, believe in Allah and love the messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Right? Yeah. Does he pray by himself? Uh-huh. So if you haven't won that battle, why are you going to come and try to save me when you haven't won your battle in your own home? Uh-huh. So prove that those, those local, those obligatory, those easy, simple steps. Prove that stuff first. Mm-hmm.
then come like we were talking in the car right mm-hmm. and we were saying and you were telling me about you know this um person that person and this political thought that political thought and i said these guys haven't proven that they can survive in a local masjid they don't go to pray in a masjid they don't do this basic fardain of being part of the muslim community right they haven't proven that they there's not a single testimony of a single individual who has said that this person made a difference in my life these people are putting words on paper they uh-huh. haven't proven zilch and to me their words are nonsense and meaningless and to be thrown in the garbage uh-huh. prove prove it to me at a micro level before you talk macro uh-huh. right so it's all nonsense all this islamic political thought this and that and the other and the ikhwan the only reason that they had any sense of benefit is that they actually helped individuals they had their bia program their bia yeah. program their political stuff i don't want to hear it yeah right i don't want to hear your your talk about uh, uh your political talk it's the action that matters and uh-huh. if you gained any traction and if you gained if you gained any traction it was the baraka that you gained from practical work uh-huh right so my point is these uh who tend to be marxist like you were talking about ali shariati and they tend to be these marxists and and these uh, it's all talk uh-huh. No action, uh-huh. right? And if you actually show me the action, you realize that the talk is usually meaningless. I think this is actually the best Islamic critique of these materialistic ideologies. Yeah. I know so many people who have been uh, at rock bottom and they've read the Quran, they've read the seerah of the Prophet Islam, and it's transformed them. Yeah. I don't know a single person who said, you know, I picked up Das Capital <laughs> by Karl Marx. Yeah. I was, you know, selling drugs. I was depressed. I had yeah. no meaning in life. And then Das Capital gave me yeah, meaning. Yeah, exactly. And, and these guys, uh, if you look at what gives people meaning, it's, it's the usually thankless grinding that happens in Masajid uh-huh. and on... Uh, uh, streets if you're going to help the people mm-hmm. it's the thankless grinding that has taken place over decades mm-hmm. not a small amount of time decades mm-hmm. over 1400 years yeah yeah i mean and and, and you're going to do that over time and then you're going to transform one generation after the other so the real change is not this uh this these glamorous uh theories and ideas uh-huh. and lectures at, at universities uh-huh. you know it's just a bunch of talk also another question i have is what do you think of like, let's say, for example, someone like Umar Suleiman, yeah. when they have the protests at the border, and there are all these religious clergy there talking about, you know, children shouldn't be in cages and stuff, he'll also go and be involved. Do you think it's important for Muslim scholars to be in those situations? That's great. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that? Uh-huh. What would be wrong with that? Yeah. He's into that stuff. He's yeah. good at it. He's good right? at it. He, he, he comes from that background, so I have no problem with that. Uh-huh. So there is a place for political engagement, but the local level and the socio is much more important. I mean, he's a, he's a man, though, who shows up to Masajid. Like, yeah. He shows up in the local environment. Uh-huh. He's a human being. He's a normal guy. He's not some guy who's some single dude with an affair, and he's talking talk, and he's not living it. Uh-huh. No, he's actually someone who has street credibility with Muslims. That's the difference. Yeah, he's he someone has, grounded in community. He's grounded. He's known. He's helped individuals. He's someone who's not all talk. Uh huh. That's why I can buy it from him. Uh huh. Hamza, we're up on two hours and plus. So Jazakallah khair. And let's do this again. All right. Every time you're in town, you just send, uh, send me a message. <laughs> yeah, inshallah. And come to uh, come over, and we'll do this again. Inshallah. It'll be a tradition when I come to Central New Jersey. Good. We'll do it. So inshallah. prepare something different next time, inshallah. Okay. Now that we covered this topic. Prepare something, inshallah, because okay. you, you, you got a good mind, and inshallah, you got a good future. May Allah Ta'ala protect you. Uh, and you're one of the few graduate students, so I actually like.
سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك والعصر ان الانسان لفي خسر الا الذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله